Hello, I'm Lucy. And I'm Michelle. Welcome to the second episode of Tudoriferous, the fortnightly biographical podcast that examines lives in the Tudor era. This week, Margaret Beaufort, Countess of Richmond. Lovely. As this is our first, I think maybe we should go over really quickly again what our factors are. Mm-hmm. Just so people are aware, we're going to start with a biography. We are following the Rex Factor family mm-hmm. podcast. The first factor that we'll be discussing? Amphiboly. That's intrigue. How devious were they? Did they form cliques and factions and plot in darkened corners? How much were they prepared to do to someone else in order to get their own way? Amphiboly means a sentence that can be construed in two different ways. Antiperistasis. This is rise and fall. Did they start in the gutter and make it to the court? Did they start in the court and end up in the gutter? Antiperistasis is perfect. It means a contrast in circumstances. Martyrdom. A word recognisable in both the Tudor era and our own. Were they prepared to die for their beliefs? Did they carry on their ceremonies in secret, hoping not to be caught? Or did they cave in at the first sign of trouble? Batim. Batim. This is our version of posterity. Did they leave behind a legacy that still resonates today? Did they do something that has a knock-on effect throughout history? Batim itself means to grant, bestow, concede, or indulge with. Flaunt to flaunt. My favourite word that we found. Flauntiflaunt means flauntingly displayed. This is our portraiture round, and how is a portrait not flaunting? We'll be looking at portraits of each of these characters to see what we can learn from their clothes, their stance, accessories, and to try to decipher any hidden clues that may be lurking in the picture. Then we'll decide... Are they too delicious, or what? Okay, biography. Ooh. It's impossible to have a biographical podcast without having a biography section. Being our first episode, I thought Margaret was the best person for us to uphold. In researching her, I discovered just how hard this was going to be. (laughs) The rest of the Rex Factor family are brilliant in the way they can have a biography without touching on the factors and then keeping the factors separate and coherent. Margaret's life was a jumble from the get-go for every factor we are using. It felt like a roller coaster researching her. I can't imagine being her. But let's begin and hope that I manage to keep this interesting and yet still making sense. So do I. (laughs) (laughs) Margaret was born May 31st, 1433, related to 30 European kings and queens to the fourth degree. All throughout her descent from King Edward III's son, John of Gaunt of Lancaster. This is where the name Lancastrian comes from. And his mistress... Catherine Swinford, who later became his last duchess. The children from this union were bastards. We can't get around that word. That was the technical term. They were bastards. Hmm. But not always, were they? Well, this is where it starts getting confusing. (laughs) Okay, so a papal bull was issued claiming their legitimacy. A papal bull, however, did not remove bastardy in the law of England. So John of Gaunt also had to arrange for an act of parliament declaring their legitimacy after the marriage of John and Catherine. Mm -hmm. The original act of parliament in 1397 was unconditional. The enabling act, which is what it was called, referred to property and office and their noble rank. So it's not a moral thing. It's not saying it's okay, you're, 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 you're one of us now. Yeah, so you've got the papal bull that says religiously and morally they are no longer bastards. But they had to then put that in law. So they did that through Parliament. And this enabling act meant that they could hold a noble rank and all the properties and honours associated with that rank. Critically, 
-hmm. It didn't confer any royal interest or right to the title of the throne at all. Did it deny it? It didn't deny it at this point. Even with both the papable and the act that I found, some accounts of her critics at the time that actually still referred to Margaret as a bastard, even Mm. though she was legitimate and her parents were legitimate. Mm. The bastardy is in reference to her great-grandparents' lack of marriage. And that stained bastardy survived through three generations. But wasn't that the sort of default criticism of people? Just like in Roman times, you accuse people of sleeping with their sister. Yes. At this time, it's <laughs> yes, they were a bastard, were or your mother was a bastard, or your great-grandfather was a bastard. and yeah. yeah. And it was so strong. I mean, it was still a matter to be cleared after Henry VII, her son, reached the throne. So much so that on the castle of Corfe, He had the coats of arms on the doorway done, but on the left side, it showed the shield laying on its side, which indicates bastardy. And on the right side, it was upright to indicate their legitimacy. So he actually had to put something in stone. What was was he trying to portray there? I'm assuming that while at one point the line was illegitimate, now with me being here, it is legitimate. Oh, right. In him, it's become Mm -hmm. legitimate. Even though... It had technically been legitimized years Mm. prior, generations prior. Before Margaret's first birthday, her father dies. And it's rumored to be a suicide. Do we know why? Yeah. Okay. Mm. So he had gone to war at one point and was captured. He was the only person who was kept and held for ransom for over 13 years. Mm. He was in prison for 13 years. It couldn't have been that bad. He ended up with an illegitimate daughter. Right. (laughs) So I, I don't think he was actually, you know, in a dungeon somewhere. He wasn't in chains. All right. Goodness no. Me. And when he finally gets back to England being ransomed, he's now in crippling debt. And his cousin, the king. Is he hasn't been able to collect on the taxes or he hasn't been able to collect from his lands or because he's had to pay a ransom? It was because of the amount mm. of the ransom which I didn't get a clear amount, but essentially what it was was people had to get together and gather the ransom, but he was still expected to pay it back. Right. And he didn't have that. Um, he married uh, Margaret's grandmother, again, confusing, also named Margaret. They're all Margaret's, aren't they? Yes, her oh. mother's Margaret, her grandmother's <laughs> Margaret, and because they all marry into the Beaufort family, they all become Margaret Beaufort. Mm. Uh, so we'll call her Holland because that was her, her maiden name. So Margaret Holland was an incredibly wealthy heiress. So that was the only way that he could get out of debt. And even then he still had debt because he had to wait to claim the amount of money in the from the lands and the service from the people below him. Top that off with him then being, because of his rank, made general of a new army that was a horrendous failure. He came back to people taking everything away from him because of the disaster that occurred. A uh, very few months later he was found dead now it's rumored to be a suicide and i think they deliberately didn't claim it to be a suicide because in the catholic church that's you don't you don't do it do you yeah no the fact that he was then buried in a church makes me think that they just glossed over that issue Mm. but margaret would have known about it it would be nice to think that the clergy would carry on the lie I think they did because there was no mention of him being excommunicated for that. Yeah. At the time, if you were a suicide, you couldn't be buried in consecrated ground, and yet he was. So I think they just glossed over it and turned a blind eye. 
You'd like to think that they would do that. Yeah, out of kindness, uh, if yes. nothing else. <laughs> Margaret, with the death of her father, was now the second most wealthy heiress in all of England. Her wealth coming through her grandmother, Margaret Holland, as we explained, who was the co-heiress of the Earldom of Kent, which was now extinct since there were no males that got sent to her and her sister to split up the entirety of the land for the Earldom, which was vast. Hmm. But the death of her father also left her as a ward, so her wardship was now in the hands of the crown to be given to somebody. Her mother was alive, but at that point, women didn't maintain control of their children after their father passed away. I, I was astounded by this. They were automatically... Yeah, that's extraordinary, isn't it? They're automatically packed away. Because the mother had no legal standing as a person. She was the vessel that carried the child. And that was it. Carried the husband's child. Yeah. Yes. Ooh. Margaret's wardship was given to William de la Pole, who was a friend of her father. At least there was some familiarity and you would hope affection there. Well, it depends what sort of friend of the father's, really. Yeah. <laughs> wardship at this time was awarded and because the term, we've got three terms here, I found in several different places that the term for the warden was either a warden, a lord, or a warder. We'll just say lord because it's easier and that seemed to be the most common. The lord ended up with control of the wealth and the land of the person who was their ward. The government would actually give it to them or they could purchase it from the crown. And during that time, the lords were supposed to maintain the lands in good state to be given to the ward at the time that they came of age for boys or were married off in the case of girls. Yeah, now I have heard of episodes where the lord has spent the money and yes. then when the ward is of age, there's nothing left to give them. I found so many references to the wardship being exploited, but I wondered mm. if it was because people were aghast that it was happening because you were technically taking it away from a child. Mm. I found more information about it being exploited than it being held honorably. I know uh, William Herbert, one of the Herberts, bought Henry Tudor yes. for a thousand pounds. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of money, so they obviously thought it was a good investment. It was a good <laughs> investment. Mm. The other thing that they could do was they could hold on to the wardship with the explicit aim of marrying one of their own children to the ward. Right, yes, I think I can see this coming. Yeah, this way they get to keep everything. Yeah, having looked at Jasper, I've um, seen it from the other side. But anyway, yes, carry on. <laughs> this way it would increase their and their own family's wealth mm. through the generations. And at this time, you didn't really think about yourself. You thought about your family and the entire mm. family's interest. It was common at the time that Margaret's hand in marriage was given to the son of her lord, which means her lord could give her hand in marriage to whomever he decided, and he mm. would get a payment for that. <laughs> but in this case, at the age of five, she was married to her ward's son, John de la Pole. Five. F5. They weren't... Five. It was more of an arrangement and a little yeah. ceremony. It was considered a legitimate marriage, but they would have to go through a ceremony later. But at this point, she was technically married to John de la Pole, who was thought to be possibly a year younger than herself. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, well, that must have been quite sweet, really, wasn't it? Yeah, two little kids, and you think <laughs> yes. it's adorable until you realize yeah, that you've just decided their life. It's a wedding ceremony. <laughs> yeah. I think oh. it's adorable, but not by actual marriage, just seeing them in their little outfits. 
The age of the children at this time isn't fully clear. We've got a range of Margaret's birth date from 1441 to 1443. So we don't actually have a specific date for her birthday. And that's the case for a lot of women at this time. They just weren't considered important enough to keep track of. From what I read, her most likely age was five. So 1443 is the birth date we're going to go for. Marriages at this age were quite common at that time. The children wouldn't be expected to cohabitate in marriage until the girl was no. at least 12, which if you think about it is awful in itself, it and is, the boy yeah. 14. Royal and noble children were often married or contracted to marry as soon as they can walk and sometimes before. As soon as they knew what gender they were, marriages were starting to be negotiated. It's, oh, it's a bit like... Um... Enoch Powell, I don't know if you know him, the racist MP from the 60s. No. Um, he put his daughter down for Eton on conception. <laughs> oh, so my gosh. his surprise <laughs> <laughs> when he had a, a boy without a winkle. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. What's most interesting to note in this marriage is that later when William de la Pole found himself on the wrong side of the War of the Roses, which we are going to have to talk about a bit, he had to defend his actions in regard to the marriage. He was accused of marrying his son to Margaret to give his son a claim to the throne. That's quite tenuous, isn't it? Because there must be better ways of getting to the throne than through Margaret. Well, at this point, Henry VI hadn't had any children. Yeah. And Margaret was... I don't suppose many people thought he would because he was a simple soul, wasn't he? Yes. Bless him. <laughs> Mind you, having said that, I've read a few things about him that's made me change my mind about him. After the Jack Cade Rebellion, he said he wanted to see a harvest of heads and he attended every single execution. Yes. I thought, I thought, you, I thought you were the nice one in the Tudor era. <laughs> I was not mistaken. Nice no, there are no nice ones. That's probably <laughs> what makes it so interesting. There are no nice ones. Even the ones that we thought were nice ones tended to just have good publicity in the, the end, I think. <laughs> William de la Pole defended himself against this accusation by saying that his original intent was to marry his son to the daughter of the Earl of Warwick, who was at that time the most wealthy heiress of England. But she died. Is that Warwick the Kingmaker, or is that the one before? That's the one before. This would have been, I think, his mother at this time? I'm not sure. But she had died, so he just switched to the second most wealthy heiress. So he was completely blatant about the fact that all he wanted was the money. Ah, oh, what an old romantic, eh? Yeah. He even, in his statement, claimed that he was it was the wealth he was looking for, not a route to the throne. Even <laughs> though the bastardy was still in play, and some thought Margaret was directly a bastard herself, she still had a tenuous claim to the throne, it's either that or they were just looking for an excuse to get rid of William. He ended up executed later. A lot of them did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that is unusual is that although the wardship had been granted to William, Margaret stayed living with her mother. That never happened. It was so rare I didn't... Even when she's so young. Even when she's so young. As soon as a wardship was granted, that child was removed from their mother's hands and given to the ward and would be raised in that household. They didn't do that this time, and I didn't find a single other circumstance where they left the child with the mother. That's interesting. I wonder why either he didn't want it, or maybe she kicked up more of a fuss and said she's not going anywhere. Even until if she she's had older. kicked up a fuss, it wouldn't have mattered, I don't think. And there's no mention anywhere that she said no, she wasn't letting go of her daughter. It seemed more that William just didn't bother removing her. 
So instead, Margaret was well, brought up... Well, if he was only after the money, he doesn't need her, does he? No, he really doesn't. And I ah. think if she stays with her mother, then he's also not paying for her upkeep. <laughs> yes, makes her even even more of a... a yeah, little, uh, cash cow. cow. Yes. <laughs> that was precisely the word I was thinking. <laughs> Margaret was brought up well and carefully in the home of her mother and her new stepfather, and from all accounts, it was an extremely loving and happy childhood. She oh was, my gosh, that must be a, must be a, a rarity as well. In the nobility. <laughs> yeah. She was given a good education, at least for the time. She was mm. taught to be a good housekeeper. That's not how we think of it today. I think of a housekeeper as somebody who cleans. But... This was more in the management of the accounts and the estates. It's a lot more complicated, isn't it? Because you're talking about estates crossing the entire country, aren't you? I mean, yes. Just, and all the yeah, provisions that a... were required, when to purchase cloth, when not to purchase cloth, yeah. when to put new rushes down on the floor, how to entertain properly. One of the biggest things she had to learn was how to behave for her rank. Yeah, it's not just a bit of light hoovering, is it? <laughs> she learned her rank, she learned how to behave, but this also included needlework and music and... Thankfully, because the Beaufort women were born in the era that noble women were beginning to learn to write, she was actually taught to read and write, which at this time still wasn't common. She also mm. learned French and a little Latin. Mm. I found that interesting. French was important because they still spoke French at court. So her mother yeah. must have thought that she was going to be at court. Foremost, however, she was taught how to be a good Christian woman and to be devoted to the Catholic faith, which we will see for the rest of her life. Oh, goodness, yes. I'm just going by the pictures I've seen of her. She looks very devout. Yeah, indeed, we will speak about that, including the portraits and how devout she was. She was thankfully raised with her half-siblings. This is from both her mother's first marriage to Oliver St. John and her half-siblings from her mother's third marriage to Lionel Lord Wells. So she grew up with quite a large sibling family. She maintained a very close and affectionate relationship with her extended family her entire life, so it appears that her early childhood had to be a happy one. Her closeness to her half-siblings and her mother later speak to such a loving, caring relationship. They were constantly in contact. In 1453, after the death of William de la Pole, King Henry VI gave her wardship jointly to his half-brothers through his mother, Catherine of Valois the Dowager Queen of England, and mm. Owen Tudor, a Welsh squire. Yes, and we will be hearing quite a bit about this story next time. Those were his half-brothers Edmund and Jasper Tudor. The king also had her first marriage to John de la Pole annulled slash dissolved. I found both those terms. So she could be married to the eldest Tudor, Edmund, who he newly created the Earl of Richmond. When Margaret was older, yep. and I have to take this with a grain of salt, she claimed that Henry VI gave her the choice of whom to marry between John de la Pole and Edmund Tudor. Yes. Now, yes, other people said she'd misremembered. She said that she asked a trusted gentlewoman that she loved dearly what to do and was advised to pray to St. Nicholas, the patron saint of maidens. She prayed to St. Nicholas, and in a dream, a man appeared to her dressed as a bishop and said the name of Edmund and told her to take him for her husband. Uh, this at most can be all I can deem as mm. an internal rewriting of history. Women of this time, mm. let alone children, they were not consulted in their marriage. Quite often they weren't even present for the marriage themselves. Yeah, I mean, some someone might have asked her almost as a joke, you know, which one, which one would you have you know, if you had a choice? She might have remembered it as someone asking her. Yeah, <laughs> or it didn't happen at all. And it was just part of the, her trying to make the whole thing sound planned by God. 
make the rain more legitimate. Mm. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I would like to insert something mm. I came across that doesn't directly affect Margaret, but we will not be covering Edmund Tudor since he was not alive at any time during Henry VII's reign, and I thought it was kind of important. I found in a few sources that there was speculation on Edmund Tudor's father. So Edmund was the son of Catherine Valois, the mother of King Henry VI. That's certain. But there are accounts of rumors that Catherine was having an affair with Edmund Beaufort, Margaret's uncle. Yes, that's why he was called Edmund and why they've got the same, very similar the exact same name, very similar coat of arms, well. yes. He was a landed gentleman at the time, and the law at that time was that if a queen dowager married a landed gentleman without the king's approval, the gentleman would lose all his lands and wealth. Mm. But that was brought in specially for Catherine, wasn't it? It's back yes. and forth. Some people say that it was actually enacted prior to this and before she married, or it was enacted afterwards because of her affair with Edmund Beaufort. I've got accounts from both. I got the impression it happened before to prevent mm -hmm. her marrying Edward Beaufort, and either she discovered she was already pregnant and thought, oh, Christ, what do I do now? And then married Owen. Because he had nothing to lose. No. He wasn't a landed gentleman, so he had no lands. Or... It was a love match with Owen, and Edmund was Owen's. Edmund was a mistake. But still, why would she name the first son Edmund? Well, unless she it's didn't very tell strange. Owen. I mean, there must be plenty of people who've had old love affairs that they've called their children after. <laughs> Ooh, that would be interesting to know. <laughs> yeah, I came across that, but it, it did seem to be dismissed that Edmund was Edmund's son. I found no proof anywhere. It was, bit, it was very tenuous. But I thought it was interesting. If that's true, Edmund Tudor and Margaret Beaufort would have been first cousins. But that was not unknown, was it? No. Well, first cousins wasn't very common. I mean, if you think of the scandal that Mary, Queen of Scots, mm. and her husband went through. Mind that was the least of their cousins. scandal. <laughs> anyway, at the age of 12, she was married yes. to Edmund Tudor. She was now both cousin to the king and sister-in-law, and her husband was 26. Now, why do you think that Edmund insisted on his conjugal rights? I read that when Henry VI was looking after the boys, Edmund and Jasper, um, when they were young, he kept, and this is a quote, careful watch through hidden windows of his chamber, and also... Mm -hmm. He put them under the care of virtuous and worthy priests, lest the untamed practices of youth should grow rank if they lacked any to prune them. Now, do you think yeah. that Edmund just couldn't wait to get his filthy little mitts on um, Margaret because he'd had no other outlet? Or, do you, and this is even more, even more dodgy, do you think that Edmund understood that if they had a child, he would be able legally to receive income from Margaret's estates as long as the child lived. So either, well, either he's a randy little sod or he's um, he's just impregnating... Full of avarice. Yeah, impregnating this tiny... Yeah. And she was a little little thing, wasn't she? She wasn't... She was 12. No, she, she, she was, was a tiny, tiny little 12-year-old. I mean, you think what you were you were like when... I mean, I was still running around the garden pretending to be a horse when I was 12. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I don't have any kids, but I have nieces, and I love them dearly. And the thought of them marrying, at the age they are now, and most of them are over 12, is just... Ugh. Uh, You're a teenager. I can't imagine doing that to a 12-year-old. No, specific, especially ugh, it's if you're... It's disgusting and heart-wrenching. Yes. 
especially you're thinking, right, okay, I'll get this done and then I'll get all the money. So, yeah, I, I can't see a way of making Edmund sound nice out of, no. out of any of this. No, he's either a pedophile or an incredibly greedy man. Or an incredib- or incredibly greedy pedophile, yes. One or the yeah, other. Yeah, or both together. <laughs> Marriage at 12 wasn't unusual, and it but was the age of consent for girls at this but time. But they did but usually leave it, didn't they? Wait. Yes, mm. they waited, because they were aware that it wasn't safe yes. to do this. So most people, they wouldn't even live with their husband or their spouse until the girl was 14, which still to me seems so young, mm. so young. But when you think that they didn't live past 30 quite yes. often, I, mean, I, we are talking, I every, guess perspective changes. Everything gets shunted forward, doesn't it? I was, I was very yeah. aware, um, looking at the War of the Roses, how young everybody was. All the people fighting yeah. were just, I mean, when Edward IV was leading an army. Wasn't he 15? He was, well, he was 18 when he was leading the army. I think he was probably 15 when he started in the wars. When they started this. They were yeah. all so, so young. But, as you say, they had to cram it in, didn't they? Yes, they mm. did. And part of the early death, though, was from childbirth for women. Yeah, and from battle for So you men. wonder if... <laughs> Yeah, if you waited just a little bit longer, perhaps you'd have less death. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, but... it might have been that he was he was desperate. And we know um, Henry the Sixth was. Well, I was going to say a prude. I mean, it goes way beyond that, doesn't it? Somebody somebody yeah. thought that they'd um, cheer him up a bit by bringing some topless ladies into the palace, and <laughs> he shouted <laughs> for shame, ladies, and ran out of the house with his ran out of the room with his hands over his eyes. He seems like he would have been a better priest than a king. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So you've now got Margaret married at the age of 12. And she has had her marriage consummated. Mm-hmm. And the phrase that I read in every single history was the wheel of fortune turned. It said everywhere. Mm-hmm. Henry VI, her brother-in-law, and her cousin lost his throne. In the fighting, her husband, Edmund, who was supposed to protect her, was captured. During his Mm. imprisonment, he contracted the plague and died. Well, it might have been the plague. It might have been injuries he'd already got. It might have been been killed. Yeah. It might have been poisoned. Yeah. The most common is plague. So that's what I went with. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. I mean, you've got to go with what the people say yeah. at the time but and i can't imagine know, was... so margaret's now 13 six mm-hmm. months pregnant and had to flee to her brother-in-law jasper's house because she couldn't be taken captive yes she runs to jasper tudor who all i can say must have been like a knight in shining armor for her he takes her in he protects her and her son she doesn't have her mother she doesn't have any relatives with her it's most likely that she only had her servants with her and a single midwife when she gave birth, which mm. was not normal at that time. There was ceremonies around noble women's confinement, it was called. But she didn't get any of that. She endured an incredible... probably safer with or without all of that, I should think. It might have been. <laughs> Just to have someone with a bit of medical... Well, some medical knowledge, rather than faffing about with all the uh, ceremonies. Yeah. She endured... I can only call it traumatic labor. Both her and her son were not expected to survive at all. 
everybody mm. had given up hope. And I don't know how, but somehow both she and her baby son survived. So Henry was born January 28th, 1457. And the bond she felt for her son was all-consuming. And I need to bring that up and really let you know that that is her one driving passion throughout her entire life. Mm. It's, it's her entire focus. It's the only way I can describe that based on her actions from then on. Every act, every decision, every risk she would take from here on was for her son, not for herself. Henry, at this time, inherited his father's title, the Earl of Richmond, and all of his lands. That doesn't last very long. I was just thinking, because you, you get strong women at this time that really do extraordinary things. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about Margaret of Anjou as well. Yes. They don't do it for themselves. They do it for their husband or their offspring, don't yeah, they? Yeah, I don't I know. Don't, I'm trying to think of any one of them. Who did it for themselves. Did it for themselves. The only person that I can think of, female, Empress Matilda. Yeah, she yes. tried to take the crown and it went horribly for her. So I think, I don't know if it's because women weren't meant to be that powerful or they knew that it wouldn't be accepted if they did, so they acted through their children. I don't know. Yes. Incredibly, Margaret at 13 and only three months after a horrendous labor took personal control of her life and arranged her next marriage. This is unheard of. Her level of autonomy and her decision to remarry and to choose for herself was, as the author Nicola Tallis puts it, extraordinary. Not only did women not have a say in their marriage negotiations, they often weren't even there during the ceremony. They didn't need to be. Somebody else could act for them in every manner, except for the consummation. Oh, lovely. Yeah, to a complete stranger. Here, you've met him. Go for it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, God. This was a strategy for her for security and protection. At this time, a woman had no rights of her own. She chose Henry Stafford, her second cousin, do you think, because there have been talk that Jasper Tudor was in love with her, but I thought if he had been in love with her, then would have been the time to mention it before she married Stafford. I don't Stafford. think even if they were in love with each other, that they could have been married. If a papal dispensation was needed to marry a cousin or a second cousin or a fourth cousin, because they were related too near, mm. I can't imagine he would allow her to marry the brother of her now passed away husband look at yeah, how henry we're, in, we're into yeah, a henry yeah just situation. two generations yeah. later he had to dissolve his relationship with the catholic church <laughs> yeah no i came across several mentions that jasper was in love with margaret but then every time they said well, he probably wasn't he never <laughs> married he did later on oh, much did he? later on okay yeah Ruth. which we'll hear about next week yes <laughs> i had not gotten to that in any of the stuff i had been researching for margaret no he certainly didn't at this time but there was a lot going on wasn't there mm-hmm. <laughs> he, was, he was a busy boy yes at this time as we mentioned before mothers didn't have any authority in their children's lives margaret would not be able to keep henry with her unlike her mother she was forced to give up her son. Mm. The marriage was arranged only three months after the birth, but Margaret returned to her son to care for him until her prescribed year of mourning was completed. They weren't able to remarry until a complete year had passed. Technically, she was kind of doing something scandalous at the same time. So not only was it scandalous for her to arrange her own marriage, it was scandalous that she did it before the year was up. She had to, though, really, didn't she? Mm. Um... Um, she was she was so vulnerable at that point, yeah. wasn't she? Just her and the boy. After that, she handed her son over to her brother-in-law, Jasper Tudor, which is where a child normally would go. Margaret's mother didn't have a brother. 
that she could give her children to. So that was a wardship that got awarded. But, because... but he, was, he already had the wardship, didn't he? He had it jointly with his brother. Yes. And then the brother But married. he now has the wardship of her son. That's true. God, I was muddling them up because she's so young. <laughs> you she is, she's still a child you herself. She's yes. still 13. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah, it was quite shocking. I read that um, Jasper spent a lot of time trying to work out the financial aspect of making sure that she had all her, everything her that was due rights. to her. Um, yes. But it was very difficult because both son and mother were both minors. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Margaret now has the title of Countess of Richmond. Technically, it's Dowager. She never says Dowager. She continues to be Countess of Richmond, and her son is the Earl of Richmond. One of the things that I found was interesting was everybody talks about Henry Stafford. I'll, I'll call him Stafford from now on, otherwise it's going to get confusing with the number of Henrys that are in here. <laughs> she called Stafford her second husband. She never considered her first marriage to John de la Pole an actual marriage because no ceremony was done. It was only the pre-contract. Mm when she was five, and it was dissolved within a year or two. She didn't consider that. That's fair enough, isn't it? She probably doesn't even remember it. No. <laughs> well, she was, what, nine when she was asked who she would like to marry? <laughs> so four years. During the first years of her second marriage, Jasper turned out to be a great guardian for her son. He treated Henry as his own son, providing for him and protecting him, which may speak to why people thought he loved Margaret, just the care he lavished on the boy. With the alarming death rate of young children, Henry's survival is a, a serious indication of the care he must have provided. Mm. If you think about one in three children didn't survive, and in some cases they say more than half didn't survive yeah. childhood, like the first years, it's, I couldn't, I'm going to be saying this a lot, I can't imagine the heartbreak that yes. a parent would go through. You think, how many people at any one time in Tudor times were, were mourning I mean, there the must time. Have, yeah, because by the time you've finished official mourning, mm -hmm. for one, you've probably lost the next another. One yeah. yeah. Margaret and her new husband were able to visit Henry quite often, and her finances do show gifts sent to the baby. So she was a caring mother, even though she wasn't with him all the time. But again, the Wars of the Roses continued. When Edward IV fought to depose Henry VI and was triumphant, Jasper was involved in the fighting to protect the throne for Henry VI. They were unsuccessful, and Jasper had to flee the country. <laughs> and because during the fighting he had left Henry safe at Pembroke Castle, yes, Henry was captured. Yes, now and he was a Lancastrian. Edward was a Yorkist. Yes, somebody said that they thought that Jasper might have told the person who was looking after Pembroke Castle, you know, let don't fight it because otherwise we'll lose great chunks of the castle. But mm -hmm. he couldn't have said that if Henry was inside. No, not with the care that he was keeping of him. Yeah. You find out later think... on the kind of things that Jasper was willing to do to protect Henry. I can't imagine he'd just say, yeah, take the boy. Yeah, no, that was his whole reason for doing everything. Well, mm -hmm. I don't know. I've... Next week or next time, I'll mention a few, a few I reasons. I know, it's difficult. <laughs> it's difficult to not talk about other people that we're going to be covering later because they're so intertwined. Yes. Every story is just a web. That should, and that's what it's all about, isn't it? So that you think, oh, hang on a mm -hmm. minute. I call, and it's all linked together. William Herbert arrived at Pembroke Castle. He captured Henry. Henry was a male Lancastrian and would from now on for the rest of his life be in danger from the Yorkist party. William Herbert was made first Earl of Pembroke by Edward IV for his service, and he was given the full wardship of Henry. Or Jasper, 
also used the he did he wasn't giving up his Earl of Pembroke, so there were two for a while. One one official <laughs> one and one that thought he was more official. One not so official. <laughs> mm-hmm. Margaret was protected from Yorkistire by her marriage to Henry Stafford. He had switched sides. He had switched his allegiance to Edward the Fourth. Everybody did. I did. Everybody did, apart from Jasper Tudor. I think you would have to. <laughs> when you see the accounts of Henry the Sixth being so inept, and now you've got somebody who's willing to fight for the throne, you think that's the end of it. And um, there must have been Lancastrians who thought Henry's not up to it. No, and he really wasn't. None of them took into account Margaret of Anjou. I think that's the only reason the wars continued. It wasn't Henry the Sixth. No, no, no. I think he would have happily stepped aside and let let mm-hmm. Edward get on with it. Well, if, for, I agree. He didn't fight it in for any way. the time, he wasn't even aware it was happening. He had catatonic no, schizophrenia or something similar. And he had yes. no idea that anything was happening. When his no. own son was born... He was so ill. He didn't even yeah, know. He was about 10 weeks old before he suddenly clicked out at this catatonic state. And he thought, oh, hello. Hello, son. <laughs> I'm yeah. a boy. It's, it's, it is absolutely tragic. But there was a lot of it about in their family, wasn't there? Yeah, going back to which Charles was it who thought he was made of glass? Yes, it was the grandfather. He was the first one, wasn't he? Catherine, it was Catherine, sorry, it was Charles II, Catherine of Valois' father. Yes, Yes, he was. And there's been a few since as well. <laughs> yes, a number since. Henry managed to become trusted by Edward and even hosted the king at Stafford's hunting lodge at one time. You have to have some level of trust in order to be willing to go hunting with somebody because of the number of hunting yeah, accidents that occurred. Thing. William Rufus, Rufus was taken out. <laughs> Staffords were on good terms with the Herberts as well, and Margaret was able to visit, not as often, but she was able to visit with Henry and keep in touch with her son, including gifts. Lots and lots of gifts. It's surprising how Henry looked upon, because he was brought up by Mrs. Herbert, wasn't he? Yes, and, I believe her name was Anne. Yes, and he looked upon her with affection, and when he was king, he called her up to court and Thank you very much, really, I think, didn't he? Yeah, and settled an annuity Which on Which was surprising because it was her father, Walter Devereux, who was responsible for Edmund's arrest and yes. possible death. Well, possibly responsible yes. for the death. Buried the hatchet, presumably. All's well that ends mm-hmm. well. You can assume from that acknowledgement annuity that he must have been cared for well I think well he, was. he was. He was treated as one of the family, I think, wasn't he? With one of the boys. It, it seems so. He wasn't kept separate from their children. He was brought right into the family. And at one point, when William Herbert died, he managed to get his widow to retain the children and the wardship of Henry with instructions to marry Henry to their daughter. Even though at this point, he was no longer the Earl of Richmond, and he had no claims to land. No, or claims to anything, did he, at this point? No, everything had been given to Edward's brother George at this point. Yes. So I don't know what Herbert thought he was getting from Henry at this time, but I can't imagine he would have thought the lands would be returned to Mm. him. It had to be affection. That's the only thing I can think of. Speaking of him losing his earldom, Margaret's son, even though he was still a baby, was included in the act of attainder that Edward had Parliament pass against leaving Lancastrians. This would highlight Henry's importance and probably terrifying Margaret, because most people that were given an attainder were executed. Goodness, yes. I think the only thing that saved him was the fact that he was three or four years old. The only thing I can think of is the fact that he's a toddler, and that's the only reason he wasn't executed like the others that he managed to pass attainder to, that he had control over. Yeah. Hmm. Getting horrible images now. <laughs> yes. 
they weren't they didn't mind executing anybody really did they if, i think even they drew the line of a little toddler <laughs> sometimes later on we'll see some examples of children being unconfirmed done away with mm. Like the princes in princes the, tower. the tower. Although they weren't, they weren't toddlers at that time, but they were still children. They're children to us, but he was twelve, wasn't he? I mean, that's not a child to, to the Tudors, I suppose. But anyway, no, yeah, we don't mm-hmm. know what happened. Although we might have a very good idea. <laughs> you wonder if William Herbert was looking at Margaret and thinking that if a girl who was thirteen could take control of her life and decide who she was going to marry against the wishes of others, like without consultation to people who had control of her, maybe he thought that steel was going to be passed on to Henry and Henry would have been able to get his lands back at some time? That's possible. Mm. That's the only reason I can think of, because he had nothing. Henry had absolutely nothing. Why would you marry somebody who had nothing to your child? Yeah, he must have Yeah, he must have seen something in him. Mm-hmm. Back to Margaret. Mm-hmm. Margaret's marriage to Stafford appears to be one of genuine affection. They spent the majority of their time together. When Stafford traveled, Margaret went with him. This was not common. More often than not, the man would travel and the wife would stay managing the estates and the children. But they didn't have any children. No. Uh, most speculate that Margaret sustained damage during the horrific birth of her son. She was 13, and when we say she was tiny, it was noted by the chroniclers and the historians at that time how tiny she was, slender and small. When mm-hmm. you think that the average height of a woman at that time might have been five feet, think about how tall she must have been if they are mentioning how tiny she is. Hmm. Well, presumably babies are also smaller, which may explain the higher mortality rate. Well, I don't know if they are. I, I didn't look into that. No, I don't know. I've never thought of it before. That just occurred to me. If anybody knows, let us know. <laughs> yeah. Their lack of children may have been a reason the spouses spent so much time together. Margaret didn't have any children that she needed to remain behind to care for. Mm. It could be that it was just the fact that she didn't have anything to do, but I, I still a, believe that their marriage was a happy one. There's still to run and things if she'd wanted to stay behind. But Yeah, there are plenty of accounts of unhappy marriages where the spouses actively avoided one another living in different houses on their estates to prevent them having to spend time with their other spouse. If Margaret and Stafford had those difficulties with how strong-willed Margaret was, I wouldn't see her staying in his presence. (laughs) Divorce at this time wasn't an option, but like I said, she could have stayed elsewhere. Margaret had to be very careful when she delicately ingratiated herself to King Edward and his Queen Elizabeth. Keep in mind, her brother-in-law is the true King of England, if you want to call it, Henry VI. Yes. Her family, the Beauforts, and her brother-in-law, Jasper, were actively seeking to remove the Yorkist king from the throne. Jasper never stopped. <laughs> never stopped for a minute. No, and even a bunch of the Lancastrians that then gave their allegiance to Edward would then rescind it and go back to Henry later. Hmm. She had to walk such a delicate line, I would think. She did that all the way through her life as well, didn't she? I mean, yeah. She's, um, Even up till she... and after Henry II's reign, there were times where she took her family's position against her own son. There were a couple that we'll mention. No, she had to. Mm-hmm. Her entire being, and we need to, because we're constantly talking about her son, we do need to 
think about the fact that Henry was her sole focus. If you can think, if you have children, how much you'd do for them, and she only has one, and he was in very real danger, you would think that would mm. never be able to be let go of. And she did so many things that I think she only would have done because of Henry. She was willing to prostrate herself before her family's direct enemy to keep him safe. She pledged her allegiance. She hosted him. She wrote to them. She negotiated. Even then, there were more battles between the Lancastrians and the Yorkists, and it will keep on going until her son claims the throne, which at this point wasn't even thought of. The power changed hands constantly. Margaret, during this time, had to be pragmatic, and she adapted constantly to the changing times. How she managed this balancing act between her family loyalties to the Beauforts and the Lancastrians, and her husband's now loyalty to Edward IV, is unfathomable to me. How can you still keep in contact, which she did, with her family that was fighting against the king without getting herself and her son in trouble? I don't know. Mm. The charisma she must have had to do that. Yeah, because there are moments where if the king knew what she was up to, yes, it would have been very nasty for both her and Henry. Yes, and her husband. Her husband could have been yeah. blamed for husband, it. Yeah. The Wheel of Fortune yet again turned. <laughs> The mm-hmm. king's brother, it does. Edward's brother George, who now had Henry's Earl of Richmond title, became disaffected. He switched sides and joined with the Earl of Warwick, the kingmaker. This is his father-in-law. He marries the Earl of Warwick's mm-hmm. daughter, and they work to restore Henry VI to the throne. And Richard III also married one of his daughters as well. Yes, later. Mm. So this is 1469. William Herbert, who was alive at this point, took Henry with him to the Battle of Edgecote. Henry would have been 9 to 12 at this point. We're not entirely sure, but most likely 12. I wonder if he took him because he thought, well, you're going to have to do this eventually, so you might as well see what, what it's about. Because I think Henry stood on a hill and watched, Yes, he? he did, and I think that was at this time. Military training would have yeah. started by now. He's 12. I think that would be the reason, but... Can you imagine being Margaret and finding out her son is going to battle at 12? Mm. I mean, he's not a part of the battle, but it's yeah, it's a dangerous world. If it's... Yeah, uh, if she was married at this age, but still. Yeah. <laughs> Edward's forces were defeated and Herbert was executed. Yes, he was. He had, he had retainers that were loyal and they scooped Henry up and took him back to his widow. Margaret, from everything that can be seen at this time, was absolutely frantic. She knew that Henry is at the battle and that he was in danger, but didn't have any information that he had survived. That's, uh, I mean, I've got kids. Well, they're not kids anymore, but I, you, you just hate that idea of not knowing. Now, yeah. now the equivalent is a, is a gap year. <laughs> and they're off across the they world. Disappear. <laughs> <laughs> my they disappear. They don't call you. <laughs> no, my daughter disappeared in Burma. I didn't hear a, a thing from her for ages. And I, oh yeah, the thoughts that go through your mind. So she must have had... Exactly the same thoughts. Margaret once again showed her steel. She and Stafford immediately approached George, so this was the traitor brother of Edward, to renegotiate Henry's wardship, with both Stafford and the widow Herbert being there. But it doesn't show that Margaret was during those there during those So doesn't show that Margaret was there during those negotiations. So what had George? He's Duke of Clarence, isn't he? What um Correct. What because did... Henry the Sixth still wasn't really reigning, they approached George. Because right. Henry was at this state still not really all well. there. No. So George was essentially ruling. It was such a short time, but they had to approach George, and George she did ruling. it within weeks. Sorry? Um, I didn't realise George was actually ruling. 
the um yeah when henry did get the throne back um for this brief time he was taken round london to be shown to the people but they had to hold his hand to, to mm-hmm. take him along Essentially, George and Warwick were making all the decisions. Yeah. Margaret didn't waste any time. Within a week or two of them doing the Battle of Edgecote, she was approaching him to try to get Henry's lands back. Though she isn't mentioned in the negotiations for her son's wardship, she must have been telling her husband what she expected. Because you can't imagine her not (laughs) at this point. Edward never left England at this point, and he quickly took the crown back. This put Margaret in an unbelievable position of just having negotiated with the enemy. Yes. The trust and goodwill that her and her husband had worked for so hard to gain was lost. They were persona non grata. A year later, in 1470, her half-brother, was it Lord Wells? I can't remember. One of her half-brothers conspired with Warwick and George and was executed by Edward. It was Lord Wells, yeah. Yeah, we know how much family meant to Margaret and can only imagine this blow and the fear she would have felt for the rest of their family. Mm -hmm. If he was executed, who else would Edward take out? This was one of the most tumultuous years for Margaret. In November of that year, Warwick and George had again invaded England and garnered more support, successfully forcing Edward to actually flee the country. Jasper Tudor rode into Wales and reclaimed his nephew. There was a reunion between Jasper, Henry, and Margaret, and Margaret seized this chance and brought her son to the king. For the first time, he was meeting Henry VI. But this was a huge risk for how often the crown keeps changing and how many times her family was being executed. Mm. You would think that she would have stayed back, but she didn't. She took her son and her husband, who had supported the Yorkists, and went to meet King Henry. When she presented her now teenage son, she told the king that she had named him after him. I think that was had she, do you think, or is this a bit of gamesmanship? You know, the Welsh Chronicle claims that Jasper had him baptized as Owen after the grandfather. Yes, Margaret, at the age of thirteen, forced the priest to rebaptize him as Henry because she felt he was going to be king. I don't think she felt he was going to be king, uh, but it could just be because it was a Lancastrian name and she wanted to honour her ancestors. A family name, yeah. Yeah, and she didn't know the Tudors. It was just Jasper and Edmund. I, I don't know. I think that at this point it was just an ace to play. The king's mm. back in town. We've been supporting the Yorkists. This will save us. We have to take this with the pinch of salt, but Henry apparently told... Henry the Seventh, when he was still a boy, that he was going to wear the crown one day. Yeah, did he? I don't did think he? so. Or is this a is this a Margaret? Yeah. Yeah, another <laughs> rewriting of personal history. I think so. She's. Uh, I think she sees life as she wants to see it, doesn't she? Really. Yes. <laughs> or whatever story makes the Tudor dynasty more secure. Yes. I don't even know if she thought it was a lie or if it's just her interpretation i'm not sure maybe he said it who knows we'll never know within a few years 1471 edward re-enters england yet Uh again stafford was required to join edward and fight for him for the first time margaret had to fear for her husband heading into battle he hadn't done it before this is the only time that we have that he was in battle himself she had really good reason to fear 
in this year, Warwick was defeated and killed. Henry mm-hmm. VI's son was killed. Mm-hmm. Henry VI yeah. was captured, and mm-hmm. Edward was once again on the throne. Henry VI was soon dead as well. He died of melancholy, of course. Really. Apparently, yes, because his son died. Sure. Yes. And Margaret of Anjou was also captured, wasn't she? She was captured, but pensioned off, eventually. Mm-hmm. Stafford survived the battle, but was badly injured. Mm-hmm. Badly injured enough that everybody knew he was not going to survive. And he would. He would soon die of his wounds. And Margaret was alone yet again. Jasper and Henry fled to exile in Brittany on Margaret's urging. And she must have felt that would be the only way she could keep her son safe. But because of that decision, Margaret would not see her son for 15 years. Mm-hmm. Her husband, Stafford, had fought for Edward and later died of his wounds. She had just lost her brother-in-law, her son, her husband, in one year. Everybody's gone. Margaret joins her mother's household, and I hope she found comfort there. I mean, when you think about everything she's lost in such a short period of time with the constant stress, you hope she finds some sort of comfort. Mind she she's not alone, is she? I mean, it was, must have been so much heartbreak and For stress so many at that women. time. Yeah, yeah, women, men, children, everybody. I mean, yeah. you, you never know. It's a bit like later on, whether to be a Catholic or a Protestant. It's You're choosing what? against one side of your family or the other, and there is no... Or you're choosing one side and then the other side is in and you're left yes. high and dry. So, yeah, lots of people must have yeah. been in that situation. But, yeah, perhaps not quite so high profile. No. Once again, Margaret showed how strong she was. She acted before anyone could award her hand in marriage for her and she arranged her own marriage. Mm-hmm. 1472. Again, this what, is something that's that involved. Yeah, it became a direct negotiation. She approached them physically. So in this case, it's 1472. Her husband has only been dead a few months. She negotiated her third and final marriage to Thomas Stanley, the first Earl of Derby. Again, a marriage of security and convenience only. She did not have the option to marry for love. There wasn't enough time, I don't think. And she had to worry about trying to stay alive. Her husband died. But the rest of her family was still on the wrong side of, I don't know, the wrong side of the wall. I don't know. But I think there must have been something between her and Stanley, mustn't there? Because he took a lot of risks for her, didn't he, later on? Eventually, but at the same time, I don't know. There's so many things that speak to either way. We'll get there. We're doing Stanley at some point as well, so... uh... We'll see it from his side. Yes, we will. And we're going to be covering her a little bit more with this. Margaret married Stanley within one year of the prescribed period of mourning. She didn't wait. She Mm. went ahead with the marriage. And this was even before Stafford was buried. She hadn't even buried the one husband before she was married to the next. Today, we think that's incredible and a little disrespectful or maybe very disrespectful but it was even more scandalous at that time it was huge stanley was close to edward the fourth he was the royal steward why why would stanley agree to that i mean wouldn't he want to wait to avoid the scandal margaret was still the wealthiest woman in england Mm. because of her marriage to stafford she hadn't lost anything in fact she even managed to get dower rights to stafford's lands so Stanley would have thought, if I leave it for the right amount of time, she might Marry look somebody. elsewhere. 
Yeah. Yeah. He, he took it up. Margaret's negotiations though, with him directly with him had to have been masterful. They had to be. Stanley promised in the marriage contract, and there were at this time a marriage contract, you wrote up where everything was going, who had what rights to what. And he promised that he would not interfere with Margaret's estates that she had prior to their marriage or the estates that Margaret's mother willed to her. Stanley was saying, I'm hands off. These are all yours. He didn't automatically take them, which is what the right of the husband was. Essentially, when a woman married her husband, everything she owned was his. She didn't mm. keep anything at that point. But he said, no, you can keep it. He also recognized the, in the enfeoffment <laughs> of the mm -hmm. lands that were set aside for her son, Henry. So enfeoffment was the exchange of lands for a pledge of service. In essence, she had already given the lands to Henry. Henry could claim the money from and income from those lands, and Thomas didn't contest it. And he could have, because Henry had had an act so of danger against him. He owned nothing. Why, why didn't he do this then? I don't know. Hmm. I don't know if it's out of respect or he felt it was the only way he could get her to agree to marry him. So he maybe, still had may, some Maybe income. she said that up front. She said, yeah, I'd like to marry you, but keep your, keep your mitts off my money. Yes. And since she could have married anyone with her wealth, maybe he just felt it was the best he could yeah. get. I honestly don't know. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall during those negotiations to find out how mm. she managed this. One thing that was interesting was that at this point, it's telling that the marriage contract between Stanley and Margaret did not include any provision for children. In every so she marriage... wasn't expecting to have any? No, either she didn't believe she could, or some have suggested she was actively taking steps not to have children, which apparently was a possibility at this time. Hmm. Either way, in every other marriage contract children were it was written in what provision was for them because usually and in this case as well stanley had children from earlier marriages that could have claimed everything in the marriage contract they would state what was being set aside for the second wife's children and they didn't do that they left it out entirely right mm. unlike stafford her Second husband, Stanley had a position at court that required his presence. So prior to this, Margaret was almost never at court. They were rarely involved at court or in town. And when I say in town, I mean London. That was pretty much the one in town you could talk about at this time. Margaret I thought the Lancastrians moved to the Midlands. They were in Coventry and Leicester a lot more, which was why London rather turned against them and was very much a Yorkist town. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. London's losing money with not having the court there. Yes, not, but when money. Edward was there during the time that she was with Stafford, she, they weren't at the court or in London. Mm. But Edward that. was definitely a London, London based King, in very London. much so. Yeah. Margaret's life now changed drastically. Instead of being a woman on estates out in the country, she could not be absent from court anymore. For the next 13 years, Margaret used her new husband's position to re-ingratiate herself with Edward and Elizabeth. She negotiated tirelessly for her son's lands and title. Elizabeth Woodville. Yes, Elizabeth Woodville. Though the time was relatively peaceful, her son, and I say relatively because this is during mm -hmm. the Wars of the Roses, mm -hmm. her son and her brother-in-law was still in exile and she must have been aware of Edward attempting to pull Henry back from exile. He was in negotiations with 
the Duke of Brittany. He sent agents mm -hmm. to try to capture him and bring him back. And yet she was still negotiating to try to get his title and his lands back. Well, yeah, next time when we do Jasper, we'll see the other side of these negotiations. We'll see it from the Brittany-French point of view. Oh, that'll be great. So. <laughs> Her negotiations must have, again, been masterful. I don't know. Maybe she should be one of those people teaching a master class. Because she actually managed to get Edward to give back Henry's title and most of his lands mm. at one point. During this time in her life, it's speculated that she may have used the queen as one of her ends in the negotiations. She came to know the queen and the children very well. From her later relationship with Cecily, Elizabeth of York's younger sister, I can seriously believe this speculation. She has a relationship with Elizabeth Woodville, but it's a bit obscure. Margaret was more involved in court affairs that would have been through Elizabeth as a servant to the queen. She had quite a bit to do within the court itself, so she was there quite often. And the later negotiations she had to have with Elizabeth to try to get Henry onto the throne speak to a friendship that had to have been there for her, them to trust each other when they couldn't actually speak to each other. They had to use a third party. No, I never thought of that because, yes, you hear about this Woodville-Beaufort connection. Mm -hmm. I, it seemed to come out of the blue. Suddenly, Margaret Beaufort seemed to be thinking, right, well, I've got to negotiate with this person if I'm going to do it. But I if... don't think it did come out of the blue. No, no, it, no. It, that's, yes, that makes a lot more sense. A lot of what I've read was how affectionate Margaret was to her daughter-in-law, Elizabeth. And Cecily was unmistakably her favourite. The amount of time that they spent together after Henry and Elizabeth got married is telling. Cecily had rooms at every house of Margaret. Cecily had rooms at. They were provisioned for her for her use at any time. Mm. And you don't do that for somebody you're not fond of. That's Cecily, Elizabeth of York's sister. Little sister. sister. Yeah. I think that Part of the reason why she did manage to get these negotiations happening is because she did manage to get close. Now, that's all speculation. We don't have anything in writing anywhere. It's just all the stuff that happens in the future and the fact that Edward was so against Henry and then all of a sudden said, okay, fine, I'll give it back to him. Hmm. Sounds like somebody else was telling him in his ear, like, husband, <laughs> I love you, but you need to do this for me. <laughs> Margaret was actually important enough at this time to be involved in one of the princess's christenings, which was a huge honor. And you only get that if they like you. Mm. I mean, it could be an indication of her rank and the fact that she is descended from a royal line, but they excluded a lot of people. so extraordinary when you think that her, her son and her brother-in-law are actively campaigning overseas to overthrow this man, and yet yes. she's still managing to, to sweet-talk her way around him. Yes, and how does that work? Not only yeah. that, she was sending him money. <laughs> yes. Well, and also, Stan yes, Stanley was as well a bit later, wasn't he? Yes, yes. Was, well, I'm jumping ahead a bit here. That, yes, um, we are. During, during Richard III's time, he, mm -hmm. he sent money, and you think, oh, I bet Richard didn't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> The end of 1482, so we are getting closer, mm -hmm. would be a year that is the only year I can think of that actually provided hope for Margaret. Edward agreed that Henry could receive a share of his grandmother's lands, mm -hmm. that he could have his title back, and that he could return to England. But before this last negotiation was completed, once again, 
the crown and the country was thrown into confusion because Edward the Fourth, now horribly obese, mm-hmm. dies. Yeah, all of a sudden, he is gone. I mean, it was, I've heard it's either his Epicurean lifestyle or he was poisoned. But I read we'll both ne- as well. Never know. We'll never know. No, we won't. Unless they exhumed him and did testing on his bones to find out if there was poison in his bones. Oh, well, there we are. Well, we can ask the boys and girls out there if they'll go, go out and exhume Man, him. I would love them to do that with all the monarchs that we're not sure of. <laughs> How did this person die? Please find out. At first, it appeared Edward V, Edward's the fourth son, would smoothly inherit the throne. It seemed to be going that way. Oh, yeah, one. I can see no problem at all. Oh, it's no, it's, it's be beautiful. Great. It's the oh. first time it's going to be switched over without any damage or war or fighting. Mm. But Richard III, well, Edward's brother... there was no brother, damage or war or fighting, was there? Oh, it was just, just a little messy accident. Just a little, Possibly. Yes. Perhaps. He was just overprotective, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Smothered them in love. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. We're going to get emails from the Richard III uh, Society. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what happened. We don't know what happened. But yeah, he definitely had other ideas. Soon Richard Mm. became Richard III. Edward's two young sons disappeared, and Margaret and her husband had to adjust to yet another new court with new factions and start all over again. Mm. She got so far this time, and now she has to deal with somebody new. On the positive side, Stanley and Margaret were both immediately cultivated by Richard. He was attempting to secure their loyalty. He didn't have a lot of support, and people were quite upset. But Richard wasn't popular. No, he wasn't. I can't. No. I couldn't find anybody apart from the people he'd sort of effectively bought off, who had a good word to say about him. But he has quite a nice record up in the north. They were very fond of him, but not at this moment. Once the boys had, the two boys had disappeared. Mm-hmm. That was it for Richard, really, wasn't it? Pretty much. People, yeah. He had done too many machinations, I think. He had tried to claim that his brother was illegitimate, that his mother had had an affair, mm-hmm. which I'm sure made her happy. I should imagine she was fuming. (laughs) (laughs) And then you've got the fact that he's like, okay, well, that's fine. But his marriage to Elizabeth Woodville wasn't lawful. He found multiple ways to claim that he had a better claim to the throne. He found too too many. Yeah. He protested too much. (laughs) Yeah. Margaret realized that he was that unpopular. And she involved herself in the effort to remove him from the throne. When this was unsuccessful, she was put under her husband's guardianship as a prisoner. (laughs) didn't stop her she continued to conspire knowing that Richard had to go or she would never see her son again she's like a clockwork thing isn't she once she's wound up never lets go (laughs) ever (laughs) Richard she believed had killed the boys in the tower after he pledged their protection there is no promise of safety he could ever give her son that would ever be trusted Mm. he's lost everything and anything here yes and I suppose if she's so friendly with um, Elizabeth Woodville and Elizabeth gave up the younger son, Richard, yeah. and must have must have been kicking herself to, in the very least. Um, I think she would yes, blame I herself guess. for the rest of her life for that. Oh, she I don't see how to. you could not. Yeah. In 1485, yeah. the Battle of Bosworth occurred. <laughs> Margaret's husband, unlike Margaret, played this as safely as he could. 
I can't blame him. <laughs> I've seen the crown be passed yeah, back. Yeah, I've got quite a lot about that. Yeah. <laughs> like, who's going to win? We'll wait till the last minute. So he learned to be very careful with his allegiances to retain his lands and his life. At the last possible minute, he joined the battle on the side of his son-in-law. Richard was killed and Henry was proclaimed King of England. Margaret, while triumphant, apparently wept with new anxiety. Her life had been nothing but an example of kings being overthrown and people being killed for the pleasure. She couldn't rest. I know she's she's taken all this, this effort to get in mm-hmm. there, and now she's probably panicking because he's there. And there's so many people who don't want him there or may want the throne themselves. Mm. Yep. She knew that this was not the end, that she her son would never be safe. Once Henry was king, Margaret took an action that I found surprising and I wondered at, and it goes back to her marriage. She had herself first declared a femme soul in Parliament. This is a status that makes the woman the sole controller of her money, her lands, and most importantly, her own self, like her body. This is unprecedented for a noble woman. I didn't find a single other example anywhere for a noble woman. Who would be doing that if not noble women? Merchant women. Femme soul previously right. been declared for a tradeswoman whose husband had died. This allowed them to continue. So she could carry on trading. Correct. And continue the right. business without the authority right. of a man. Quite often, these were only women who did not have sons. So this was also to appease the guilds, I suppose, as well. Yes. And to keep the economy going. I think it was entirely about money. And even then, it was rare. It was not a common occurrence. For a noblewoman to have declared herself this must have been shocking. She had no claim to declare herself a femsel. She had no contracts in trade that she would need to be able to write. But Stanley's still around, isn't he, at this point? Oh, yes. So what's what's he got to say about this? (laughs) This is where I started wondering whether or not they were actually affectionate. Thomas, her last husband, is... The relationship is so difficult to comprehend. She had herself declared femsel. She removed herself and her wealth specifically from him. He now no longer had any legal claim whatsoever. Even with that contract, he now could never rescind on that. And then on top of that, she takes a vow of chastity. The histories Hmm. say that she did this with his assent and his approval, but what else could he have done? Well, I wonder, could that have been throughout her life? I mean, if she was so badly damaged through the birth, chastity might have been her main option anyway. It might might have been. I mean, psychologically or physically. Yeah. She was the king's mother. Could he honestly have said no, do you think? What are you going to do? Turn to the king and say, no, I'm not letting your mother not sleep with me? That's very <laughs> awkward conversation. Yeah, it's not the conversation you want to have with your wife's son. No. Is it? <laughs> At the same time, the relationship from then on still seemed to be friendly. They no longer lived with each other. She lived apart from him from now on, but they remained in communication and visited each other very often. Well, sometimes that's what marriages need, isn't it? A mm-hmm. bit of space. <laughs> and since they own <laughs> they own a lot of land, they've got a bit of space, yep. haven't they? <laughs> they both had rooms in each other's homes set aside, so they were provisioned for, which you would think if you didn't like them, you would just wouldn't invite them. Mm. But it speaks more to a business partnership or a friendship than an actual love affair. I don't think it was a love match, but maybe there was some affection there. The vow of chastity. I think this is the perfect time to bring up her piety. Yes, okay. Well, then hit us with her piety. (laughs) John Fisher, who was her confessor and later became a bishop, in numerous communications stated how pious Margaret was. And his biggest focus was that she didn't overindulge in food. I thought that was interesting. Oh, well. (laughs) She might just not not have been interested. Possibly. Not everybody is totally focused on food. 
She began her day by hearing matins in her chamber and then mass in the chapel, but that was not unusual. Others, pretty much every noble person did. She would hear mass several times a day. Again, not unusual. During dinner, she would speak of religious matters to whichever religious personages were there, which is a little less usual. It comes across as if she invited priests, bishops, and archbishops to dine with her almost on a daily basis for these discussions. She had a personal confessor that lived with her in her household, which was common to almost every noble person. Yeah. Um, many of her books, Margaret was famous for her collection due to the high value of books. Books were extremely expensive at this time. Many of them were religious texts. This is where we get to that mention of the portrait that you were saying earlier. Her only true portrait, the two that were done, show her in religious garb. It's called a Vowesses garb. It's very much like a nun's habit. Yeah, and she's got that look, that sort of pinched, you know, as if she drinks vinegar for pleasure, that sort of, <laughs> sort yes. of look about her. Yes, but she's her entire family was very slender. If you look at pictures of Henry VII, he was quite slender, mm. and Mary, her granddaughter, was quite slender as well. Now, I think the weight factor for Henry VIII came through from Edward IV, because he was quite obese in his older age, just like Henry mm. was. Yeah, no, they were mirror images of each other. Well, not mirror images, they were images of each other. And you follow Margaret <laughs> through and you end up with Elizabeth, who was also very, very slender. Hmm. I think that just might have been her build. The portrait, we will discuss that more in Flaunt a Flaunt Round, but it gave history a very narrow view of Margaret. Nicola Tallis, who wrote my favourite source for Margaret, uh, tells us that Margaret really enjoyed parties and had more non-religious books than other noblewomen, including Cecily of York, Elizabeth's sister, who mm -hmm. had a much greater piety. So if you could say somebody else was more pious than you, then how pious are you really? You may just be... I wouldn't have thought there's much more time to be more, time, more pious. More pious. <laughs> I know. She's filling in every, every minute of the day with piety. But I like the idea that she liked parties because she doesn't, you can't imagine her. No, she uh. also loved fashion and jewels. The histories tell us of her scarlet gowns, scarlet and crimson mm -hmm. gowns trimmed with fur, the beautiful jewelry that she wore constantly. In one case, I read that she was dripping with jewels, which I thought was interesting. I thought that was a newer expression. Hmm. Oh, this is not at all the image I had of her. Not at all. Oh, the parties. She hosted a lot of parties. She also enjoyed hunting, chess, and gambling. And if you want to ask if she's pious, I think it can be summed up in this. She has an account of her deputizing another man with money to go on a pilgrimage in her stead so she could stay back and play cards and gamble. This is not with Margaret. <laughs> I had so much visits to tell. You've got to be kidding me. What's going on? Good heavens. I think we need to think... More about the fact that she was a woman in a time where piety was a way of life and enmeshed so much in culture to a level that just doesn't exist today. So what we think yeah. is exceptionally pious may have just been the normal behavior at that time. Yeah. As she got older, of course, she made amends and applied for indulgences from the Pope. And she became more focused on her religion. But in her younger days, I don't know if it was really a level of piety that everybody would like us to know. The fact that she also applied to the Pope for indulgences and received them doesn't say for what sins she needed those indulgences for. Mind you, if you're very pious, you'll, you'll find sins, won't you, that uh, true. most people wouldn't wouldn't even think of as sins. But um, Very true. But yeah, if she's parting the night away and... 
Yeah. Gambling. Wow. <laughs> Goodness. Nowadays, we see gambling as a problem, mostly because there's such a thing as gambling addiction. Back then, it was much more common. She was also very fond of bear baiting, which I found horrific. Mm. But everybody liked that kind of stuff and enjoying. Indeed. Mm-hmm. I don't know, again, if that has to say anything about her character that. Would... It's so hard to put yourself in that. I mean, now, if anybody's announced they like bear baiting, you would put them in the... Yeah, animal cruelty. Well, just prior to becoming a, well, probably a psychopathic tendency. Yes. <laughs> Most of their enjoyed entertainments were horrific. You've got bear baiting, mm-hmm. bull baiting, you've got dog fighting, cock fighting. You went and watched executions for fun on a Sunday. <laughs> I don't know if it was Sunday. And, um, the one I'd never come across before, and this is leaping way ahead, um, Henry the Seventh and um, the Duke of Burgundy, when he got blown onto the British coast, they went to see horse baiting. I mean, have you ever come across horse baiting No, before? I haven't. Is there any animal they won't bait? Oh, it's just... Yeah. It was a horrific time, and I think she was just a character of her time. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can't place her into our time and complain about... Mm-hmm. But we also don't get mentions of her piety until much later. Oh, right. So she was like um, St. Augustine, who wanted to be good, but not yet. It seems kind of like that. I mean, she didn't start applying to the Pope for indulgences or becoming, well, just before Henry became king, she applied to become members for a confraternity. And she did that for her son as well, which was basically a group that would pray and do good works. But it was a religiously based group. She was applied and was granted papal approval to visit an anchoress. This is a woman who would have been bricked in or locked into a cell within a church. When I say cell, that's living space at that time. That's what it was called. They were under a religious vow to never leave those confines. These people would often, if the church caught fire, burn down with the church. Hmm. She provided for the anchoress as well, giving their money and paying for her cell to be upgraded. Made it better, bigger, prettier. Cleaned? Possibly, (laughs) yep. But, yeah, it makes you wonder about the, the arrangements for this anyway. And confraternities, she was actually a member of several of them and founded a few. So how sudden was this change then? Into I'm not sure. Increased piety. Was it based on something? Was it, can you pinpoint something in her life where she suddenly thought, I need to... Most of them were after the death of her second husband and when Henry was no longer in the country. I don't know if she was so traumatized or trying to find any way to make her prayers for her sons heard more. I don't know. It it may have been just that there were more records afterwards as well. Hmm. I mean, you can understand it. She's got a lot to worry about. Yes. And yeah, as you say, it is perhaps it's allowed a voice to God. From the time of Henry VII accession, Margaret frequently was in the company of the king and queen. And I mean frequently including joining them for royal visits and progresses. In case we have listeners that are new to learning about this time period, maybe we should explain what a progress is. Mm-hmm. Okay. There were no televisions or radios or even accurate portraits of the monarchs at this time. I mean, even the coins that were stamped were not representations at all. <laughs> Most of the population was rural, and the majority of the population would not ever leave their village or county. Monarchs were required then to tour their kingdom with most of their court to encourage loyalty and to have a hands-on account of the state of all of their lands. And when I say their lands, the lands that the royals own themselves. So are they staying at their own premises or are they foisting themselves on 
nobles as they go by. At around. this time, it's their own premises. Because later, I certainly... Elizabeth. Yes, I was thinking about how they, how they would dread her arrival because it would cost them so much. Prior to that, they were staying at their own right. expense. Yeah, later, Elizabeth decided she didn't want to pay for that. Progresses were used really to create shock and awe, reinforcing royal authority and to ensure their people's submission. The majority of the court had to accompany the king because the business of governing couldn't stop and there was no other method of communication. So you'd have hundreds of people show up in different areas of the country and move on when they ran out of food. It must have been extraordinary for the people living there suddenly. You know, it'd be like Monty Burton and the Holy Grail. I mean, there's people scrambling about in mud and suddenly all this glitter arrives. And it wouldn't be a regular occasion either because every year they'd want to visit somewhere different. They may have particular areas or households or palaces, I should say, that they were their favourites, so they'd visit on a regular basis. But they really need to tour the entire country. Mm. So I suppose you might only see them two or three times in your lifetime. Or maybe even once. Even if they've got a a palace close by. Mm -hmm. Margaret accompanying the royal progresses was unusual enough to be mentioned in diplomatic dispatches in the Chronicles. (laughs) So they're telling other kings and queens, look, this mother-in-law keeps following them around. (laughs) Makes you wonder what the daughter-in-law thought about it. How how keen she was to have mum-in-law... Tagging a lot. Yes. Hmm. <laughs> Some historians claim that she was the true queen in all matters controlling court. I bet she thought she was. <laughs> <laughs> More than likely. They believe that Elizabeth had to defer to her judgment. A number of historians have read called her a dragon. <laughs> Do you think that's partly Henry saying to Elizabeth of York, oh, just let her get her own way. Go on, it's easier in the long run. Possibly, or... I noted when I was reading about Elizabeth how fond she was of being with her children at all times. And maybe she chose to let Margaret deal with the stuff she didn't want to deal with so she could spend more of her time with her children. It's one of the reasons why Henry VIII ended up so affectionate with his mother was because of how close and how much time they were together. Mm. Which was Mm. unusual. Yeah. I'm still not so sure I can agree with her being a dragon of a mother-in-law. I really don't. She may have pushed her status. <laughs> she did push her status. <laughs> Instead of walking behind Queen Elizabeth, she would actually walk slightly back and slightly to the side. So she was more of an equal to her in processions, which she really wasn't supposed to do. She was supposed to be 10 paces back. She was not. <laughs> Other items and mentions and letters only give me the impression that they were actually very close and affectionate. Elizabeth's sister Later in the reign, she does some things that displease the king, and Margaret takes her in and has her live with her to protect her. I can't imagine if you're overly controlling that you're then going to go against the rules, if you know what I mean. Hmm. Yeah. Then Margaret was also very, very loyal and very loving to her extended family, half-siblings, nieces, nephews, and even people she felt adopted into her family. She would arrange advantageous marriages for them. She protected them from royal censure, Cecily of York being a perfect example. What happened was Cecily contracted her own third marriage to an esquire far below her station. The king, who had the right to award her hand in marriage and could have used her as a political pawn, was extremely angry. And Cecily had to flee. Where did she flee to? Margaret. Margaret took in both Cecily and her husband, quite literally. She had them move in with her, and she protected them from Henry VII until his 
ire was softened. So that shows us something of the relationship between Margaret and Henry as well, doesn't it? That Cecily must have known that Henry wouldn't go against his mum. He must have felt gratitude to her. I mean, she's... Yes, that his mother would be able to say no. She's got him where he is, Mm -hmm. assuming he wants to be there. Yeah. The royal household ordinances show that provision was made for Margaret in all of the palaces and residents of the crown, which means they paid for her to stay there, which wasn't the way things were back then. Her lodgings were also always very close to her son's, in some cases closer than the queen's, <laughs> and joined by a chamber for a private discussion. It was the original, I guess you could call it a privy chamber, where just her and her son were. They would discuss everything. There wasn't a single chronicler or historian that didn't note the close affection between Margaret and Henry. I'm really close to my parents and, and my grandmother. Love them to bits. But I was always with them. Margaret and Henry weren't, so I have trouble comprehending how they developed such a close bond when mm. they weren't in contact. Maybe you get an idealised view of each other <laughs> that um, over those years. Perhaps, but spending that much time together afterwards, you would think that if you did have an idealised view, it would go. But for the entirety of Henry's reign, they were incredibly close. And even when Margaret got older and started removing herself from the court more and more often, all of the letters were very affectionate. There were gifts sent, Mm. and it was a constant flow of communication. I know Henry wrote her letters saying, oh, I'm sorry I haven't written, and I'm sorry I haven't written quite so much. (laughs) Yes, but he had actually written a week prior from what I read in the the notes. She was well enough known to have an influence on Henry for the fact that many people would go through Margaret to petition for help or benefices or... Or yeah. influence on the king. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you feel that's what you that's yeah. what you'd have done. <laughs> yeah, she had a great influence over rather, the king, and rather than the queen, rather than Elizabeth. Then it seems to be mm. people. From what I read, I had to read up on Elizabeth of York at the same time, and it seemed like more people were petitioning through Margaret than they were through Elizabeth. But I suppose if Margaret's at court and Elizabeth is staying out of it more and staying playing with the kids, staying with the children, yeah, then she's. She's the one to go for, isn't she? Possibly, yeah. And her influence had to be impressive. The only noted time where I noted she did not get her way in negotiation of something with the king was Henry really wanted the estate of Woking, which was her estate that she had with Stafford, her second husband, and it was her favourite place in the world. And he took it. It's bizarre, aren't they? (laughs) Yeah, he gave her another estate in place of it but it wasn't as as well kept up it didn't have the same memories for her it had to be important because when henry did pass away she reclaimed it almost he got it back <laughs> within weeks of her son's death she had it back <laughs> i don't know woking but i've just got this image of it and i'm not sure i'd fight to get it back <laughs> I don't know woking at all. I'm probably maligning it. Well, it didn't survive, I so I don't know what it would have looked like. But perhaps I think mm. it was more the memories of her her happy time with her second husband, since that one did seem to be such an affectionate yeah. relationship. Why her son decided to steal it, in essence, I don't know. Mm. Another one where she got her way, she arranged a marriage. It was against the king's better judgment, and he was quite upset with it. And it proved to be a political nightmare for her grandson, Henry VIII. 
she's the one that arranged that Richard Pohl would marry Margaret Plantagenet. This would give you Margaret Pohl. Margaret Pohl and her son, Reginald Pohl, who was against Henry VIII's marriage. She's the one that created that child (laughs) by demanding (laughs) that. We're doing doing both of them, aren't we, Margaret and Reginald? Yes, we will. several months' time. And it's all Margaret Beaufort's fault. And Margaret, for a very specific reason, (laughs) she had... Well, sure, she had a fascinating life, but her death... Oh, horrific. Oh, unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable. that's Margaret Pohl's death, not Margaret Beaufort's death. There are so many <laughs> people named Henry, Margaret, Thomas. <laughs> not many Thomas. I was saying to you, I couldn't think of any Thomases, and you pointed out Thomas Stanley, obviously. Yeah, her husband um, might have been the reason yes, why people started naming their sons. Yeah, I mean, after this, you can't move for Thomases, can you? No. There's Cromwell, Woolsey, mm-hmm. Moore, Cramner, they're all Thomases. yes. One thing that was very interesting and caused a great deal of speculation was Margaret's Mm -hmm. signing of her name. It sounds something so simple and ridiculous for people to focus on, but prior to her son's accession, she signed M, the initial M, Richmond, which was common. That was the way you were supposed to do it. You put your first name and your title. Later, after Henry took the throne, she changed her signature to Margaret R. So she's MR as in M. Regina. Which is the way royals did it. The R stood for Regina yeah. or Rex. Because mm. he did it. He was writing HR. Yes, all of them do. When he was still over in um, France. Yeah, because he had already decided. Um, before, yes, he was definitely not. <laughs> we had RR if there's such a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't know if Margaret meant that R to still be Richmond or if she was subtly saying she that probably she was... Co- she quite liked the ambiguity, I think, didn't she? Yes. Probably. <laughs> also, in some of her communications, she presses her wishes in the same sentence as mentioning the king. She would say, well, in modern terms, I won't try to do it in the Tudor way, we and the king command, or for the king's pleasure and ours, in this case using the royal plural, and she did that throughout so much of her communication. And nobody else was supposed to be using that royal mm. plural. Who was going to tell her? (laughs) Nobody. Yes. When Henry arranged the marriage of his eldest daughter, this is Margaret's namesake, so the first Margaret Tudor, Mm -hmm. she was being married to the King of Scots. Yes. (laughs) I remember that from Rex Factor. (laughs) (laughs) Margaret's own trauma surfaced. Her granddaughter was 12 and now married to the King of Scots. Margaret was Mm. determined that she not be sent to her husband in case he would not wait to consummate the marriage. She won. Mm. Her granddaughter did not leave to her husband for another two years until it was felt she was safe for it to be consummated. So was Henry pushing for her to go? Yeah, Henry was just going to send her and Margaret stepped in and said no. Elizabeth also did, but more people are saying that it was Margaret's influence that prevented her from being sent up so early. I suppose Elizabeth might have been pushing just as hard, but Margaret's got the Mm -hmm. history that you would think... Would be well listened to. Yeah, she would be pushing. Yeah. We then get to later years, and Margaret, like the rest of her family, was devastated when her grandchildren died in childhood or in their youth. The family lost a daughter, Mm. Elizabeth, named for the queen, a son, Edmund, named for Mm. Margaret's first husband and the father of the king. And finally, the queen herself Mm -hmm. died in 1503, giving birth to her final daughter, Catherine, who followed her mother to the grave. What a horrible turn of phrase. Mm. 
Yeah, you can imagine them all walking towards it. Yeah. And in. It's, a... it's just, it's so depressing. And Arthur as yes, well. Yes, he was, Arthur was Arthur. in there as well. Yeah. Mm. If Margaret had been a dragon of a mother-in-law, you would expect at this time that she would have just fully taken over the children's lives and the court, but she didn't. There was only one mention in one source saying she took greater interest in her grandchildren's education after Elizabeth's death. But she also, at this time, began to remove herself from court and spend more time on her estate. Well, she's getting on, presumably, in Tudor terms. She is getting on, and there's quite a bit of discussion or comments about, I'm assuming it's arthritis, it sounds like arthritis, her hands hurting so much she would spend hours weeping and praying to God to release her from it. Mm, that sounds like arthritis, doesn't it? Or rheumatism, yeah. Yeah, and no painkillers at that time. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so she just had to live with it. She only at that time returned to court for ceremonial occasions and later when Henry VII became gravely ill. Even though she herself was now ailing, she came to take care of him and then was in attendance when he died. She did, yeah. Now, I've mentioned this because we've both read mm -hmm. The Winter King, Thomas Penn, haven't yes, we? Yes, it was a very good book. It was a very good book, yeah. Henry, because he was ill quite often, probably with tuberculosis, wasn't he, I think? Yes. And then Margaret would descend on the, the household to look after her boy. Yes. And... There was something that struck me in this book that the first time she arrived, it said she dispatches a servant upriver to London for a barrel of muscatel. A barrel, mark you. And the second time... <laughs> muscatel is a type of wine. <laughs> yes. The second time she's recorded it ordering plentiful supplies of medicine, devotional literature and alcohol. Now, I'm not knocking her, because, you know, I like to drink myself, but I don't drink it by the barrel. Um, and I, I thought the fact that Thomas Penn put it, he, he put it in a rather pointed way, as if he uh, was onto something. That she was uh, a bit of a drinker? I, I just got this vision of her tottering around the castle. You know, <laughs> with a little the, wine glass. little drinky in her hand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't mind if I do. <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to yeah, tell. But from what you say about her partying and gambling... I yes, mean, yeah, perhaps she was a bit she, fond of, of the drink, but at the same time, they didn't have water to drink. It wasn't safe. Mm. At one point, she and Elizabeth sent to Isabella of Aragon, telling them to get Catherine used to drinking wine because water is not safe to drink in England. So it might just be that... All right, and it was safe to drink in Spain. Mm. Well, I guess so. Let's go with she was a drinker. That makes it funny. There, that's why she kept having to get indulgences. Maybe so, yeah. Maybe, yes. Off, off her head gambling all the money away. <laughs> she, oh, she must have been good gambler, though, because she never once went into the red. Did she not? She, no, not once. She was a financial whiz. Because you, you do hear people... Losing everything. Clocking up huge, huge debts, don't you? Yeah, but I didn't hear anywhere where she ever was in debt. Not once. Oh, she was obviously very sensible. She quit while she was ahead all the time, which is not what gamblers do normally. The BC Gambler Commission, I think it's called, says uh, know your limit and play within it. And that's what she was doing at Gathering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After Henry's death, Margaret stayed at court for a time to arrange for Henry VIII's coronation and his wedding. Then she retired from court. Yeah, so it was all done quite secretly, wasn't it? Because yes. 
they were very keen that it should go through without a hitch. And yes, and to make sure there was no battles. This is not how it happened normally, is it? I mean, this no, is no, not at all. These things did not work like that. <laughs> no, who else was going to fight for the throne? They wanted to get it done as quietly as possible. I was possible. going to say, perhaps they hadn't got Margaret there to make it work like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wonder how much she is responsible for the easy transition. A great deal. To, to, yeah, we will discuss that. <laughs> After Henry's coronation, she retired from court. She ensured her affairs were in order and passed away two months after her son. Mm. Well, she wasn't that much older than him, was she? No. Thirteen years, that's it. Yeah. Anyway, on to the factors. Oh, yes. <laughs> and fibbly. I think that intrigue gets glossed over in most accounts of Margaret. She must have been intriguing constantly. Oh, all the time. The amount of danger she was in was insane. Her entire family was Lancastrian. Yorkists showed no compunctions in eradicating all of the Lancastrians that they could get their hands on. Amphiboly will have to take on a slightly different point of view for Margaret than what we would probably use for others because she did not intrigue for herself. She was intriguing for her well, I son. I think that counts anyway, doesn't it? I mean, intriguing, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. The intent of this factor is to show the intrigue that a person was willing to stoop to, to press their own advantage. It seems less stooping when you're doing it for somebody else, doesn't it? I mean, it seems more... Yeah, and she didn't press for her own advantage until after her son became king, but then she did. A lot. Did she? But prior to all that, negotiations were on behalf of her son. Everything I read about her points to her sublimating her own needs for her son. So for Margaret, we'll look at everything she did for her son's advantage, because there is a lot... If we're to believe the Welsh Chronicle, we're going back to Henry's baptism. Jasper had him baptized as Owen, which was a Welsh name. Mm -hmm. The Chronicle goes on to say that Margaret at 13, Mm -hmm. in a time when women had very little say in their lives, demanded and succeeded in having the priest re-baptize her baby as Henry, the Lancastrian name of the king. Mm. The Chronicle implies that she did this because she knew he would be king, but Margaret would have known there was no possibility of that at this time. There is no real possibility of that until 1483, I think, and we'll explain that in a bit. Let's back up a bit. I've gone too far ahead. At 13, Margaret took control and negotiated her own marriage to Henry Stafford, giving her valuable links to the Woodvilles at this time and an ability to petition for Henry's lands to be returned. So the Woodvilles were already big players. Elizabeth Woodville. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Though his title and lands had been given to George, Edward's brother, she was still willing to negotiate to get it back, which I think really takes some (laughs) backbone to go to the king, take it away from your brother and give it to my son. Yes, although the relationship between the brothers was very up and down, wasn't it? (laughs) It really was. In 1468, the king was entertained at their hunting lodge of Brookwood. This is possibly her first personal meeting with the Yorkist king, and she immediately began to negotiate for her son. Hello, how are you doing? Give my son stuff. Mm. (laughs) Again, it's just like, wow. 1469, immediately following the readaption of Henry VI. That's when he came back. The readaption is, yeah, Yeah. his reestatement as king. I think this is Margaret's first major political blunder, and one of two. The other one was the Margaret Pole marriage. She approached Edward IV's traitor brother, George, personally to attempt to request Henry's lands back and his title. Oddly, he agreed. He agreed that Henry could succeed to the title when George died. Which turned out not to be quite so long as George was probably planning. No, but can you imagine being willing to give it back up to somebody else? 
how good of a negotiator do you have to be to get that? I'm trying to remember whether George had children because he's well, he had a wife because he was married to Earl of Warwick's daughter. Well, he had to have children because I think he, Henry I think the Seventh he kills his son, Edward the Earl of Warwick. Oh, the Earl of Warwick. Yes, of course, the Earl of Warwick. Yes, of course. But whether Warwick would be alive at this point, I he? don't know. Yeah, no, I have to work that. I don't think so because he was quite a child when he was very little, or not born yet at this time. But he was willing to mm. at this point. If he had his son, he had just given up a title. But he'd be assuming he would have children at some point anyway. I would have thought. I mean, most people did. You would think, unless he was also thinking I could get other stuff now that I'm in control of the country. Mm. But still, she managed to get I him to say okay. I don't think he was very bright, George. Was he? I don't think so either. It doesn't no. come across that way, but I haven't read a biography no. on him. No, I've got this image of him wearing dungarees with one strap undone, <laughs> you know, working on the farm, that sort of... Oh my <laughs> Perhaps playing the banjo, I don't know, that sort of level, I don't know. That's, that's the image I got of him. It felt almost <laughs> like he was used by Warwick, to be honest. He was used. Yeah. He was He was a puppet, And with yes. how... And, and suddenly I, there's this moment where you get the impression... Because he was told he was going to be king, that Warwick was going to make him king. And then Warwick yeah. decided, actually, I think I might go for um, Henry the Sixth son. And George still went and, along with it. Yeah, but there's a point where George goes back over to Edward, where you feel that George probably thinks, hang on a minute. Does <laughs> 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 it all sort of <laughs> slots into place? You think, yeah, they don't want me to be king. <laughs> So, yes, I don't think he's the brightest button. Possibly. And with mentions of how his son wasn't that bright either, he was made out of simple. But I don't know how much external stimulation his son got. Did he Almost was in prison none. for a long time? Yeah. But we are leaping way, way ahead now. We are definitely we? leaping. We can't have um, an episode about George because he died too early, but we've got an episode about his Prior. son. Yeah. Which uh, is going to mm-hmm. be desperately sad. <laughs> it will be. <laughs> Then Edward was restored, and he was very much displeased. He felt she was plotting. Even though she didn't plot to overthrow him, he still felt that she was plotting. Margaret had to begin negotiating and gracing herself again with the stain of this conspiracy. I'm using Benny quotes. Well, I mean, this is doing brilliantly for her um, amphibole marks anyway. If if he thinks she's plotting, yes. then she's, she's clocking up the points. Yeah. Her actions may have had a direct impact on her and her husband's status, as Stafford's younger brother was created an earl when Edward was restored, and Stafford was passed over and remained a knight. He didn't he didn't receive the honours that should have come to him. So Edward saw uh, intrigue, definitely, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Even though I don't think Stafford was involved in that, because Margaret tended to do these things <laughs> in person by herself, he was still essentially punished for it. And then when Stafford died, Margaret managed to retain her dower lands, even though Edward was removing dower lands from several other ladies for his own use if their husbands had been on the wrong side. In the time that he thought she was a plotter, until her husband's death, she managed to get back in into his good graces. Either that or he had so much respect for her and how, how difficult she was that he wasn't going to attempt it. We just wanted to get her out. Yes, yes you can have your damn land. Just, just go. go to them. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. As you say, she's either a great negotiator or at least a tyrant. Pain in the the backside. In 1465, her continued support of her son Henry gained 
permission from the king to admit him to a confraternity of the order of the Holy Trinity. This is for prayers for his immortal soul, which you had to have permission from the king to do. And this is her son, who is a Lancastrian that Edward at this time wants to get a hold of. Yes, who's plotting against him. Yeah, and yeah. she still managed to convince him to do that. She constantly pressed for her son's welfare. Just before Edward's death, she gained an agreement that if Henry returned from exile, he would regain most of the lands Margaret's mother left him on her death. And he didn't know he was dying. Mm. Mm. At one point, Edward offered Henry a pardon, but Margaret warned Henry against accepting the pardon and urged him to flee abroad because she felt that once Edward had him in his clutches, that would be the end of him. Yeah, he wasn't He wasn't going to come out, yeah. Yeah, and he did this with his uncle Jasper. They both fled. When she could no longer negotiate her son's safety, she ensured he left the country. And on top of that, she funneled money to him. She did, yes. During and the... and she persuaded her husband to funnel money to Yes, him. he did as and well. He was, meant to, he was meant to be on the other side. Yes. During the time that Henry was in exile, she was risking the king's displeasure by continuing to send him money and constant correspondence. And you can think that the kings of that time had no problem with putting women in prison. Mm. And she managed to do it without that. I don't know if he ever found out. You would think with all the spies at the time. I don't think he can have done. I don't think he can have done. I wish we had I mean, there, more records. He, I think he was the first king to use spies so prevalently. Mm-hmm, probably. That's what I read, yeah. But, yeah, I think, I think she got away with it, and I don't know how. I don't know either. <laughs> After Stafford died, Margaret negotiated a new marriage, again by herself, mm-hmm. to one particularly close to Edward. Thomas Stanley was the steward for the royal household. He was, in essence, he was a servant of the king. He was constantly in Edward's presence. He had mm. to be, because he was a controller of the household. And that provided Margaret with powerful protection and probably from her point of view, just a new avenue for negotiation with the king. Again, I think that was entirely mm. a business relationship. Mm. Her capacity for intrigue really stands out after the death of King Henry VI and King Edward IV. Before this, there's no reasonable assumption that Margaret could have thought her son was a contender for the throne mm. until after Richard III killed the princes or is presumed yeah, to have killed think, the princes. I think this is what we said last at the back on the background episode, that it was yeah. almost as if Richard just handed the crown to Henry the moment that he possibly, probably killed the princes. Exactly. Henry's claim was so remote and the stain of bastardy was so strong that it would have been impossible for Henry to have garnered enough support from the other nobles to attempt a coup. I don't think you can exaggerate the opprobrium that Richard gained by not saying what had happened to the princes. I mean, if he'd said... Nothing at all. He didn't. Yeah. He was stum, completely stum, wasn't he? And Yeah. That in itself, I think, says that he did something. Because yes. if they had died of natural causes, he could have displayed them. He could have said something. Or there was an accident. He mm. didn't. He never addressed it. It might have been one but, of these things where they did die of an accident. And he thought, oh, I, I don't think I, oh, they're going to think it's me. And he left it. And he left it just too long. Too and long. he thought, oh, I can't say now. <laughs> People will desperately think it's me. And I thought, I, I just won't say anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just and made totally it worse and worse backfired. and worse. Yes. After the princes were suspected to have been killed and Richard took the throne, and that's critical, Margaret and Thomas were now important symbols for Richard for support and stability. Margaret mm. was in attendance on Richard's Queen Anne during the coronation. Mm. 
But through Richard's <sighs> action... Are you feel that the cogs are ticking away in Margaret's mind all the time. She's thinking, oh, if I do this, I can get around to it. She's... I think at the beginning, because of how much she was involved, she was probably thinking it's just another way to get the land for my son. But then <laughs> Richard's actions and the summary killings of his own supporters, mm, hasty. the executions mm. of powerful Woodvilles, his machinations to first make... I love that word, machinations. <laughs> first attempts to make his brother illegitimate, and then his successfully de- declaring his brother's children illegitimate, and then ultimately the disappearance and deaths of the nephews. Margaret seriously must have just took a look at the extent of the opposition to Richard, abandoned her allegiance, and joined the plotters. Well, she did. I mean, especially after the um, Buckingham mm-hmm. Rebellion. Well, with the Buckingham they were Rebellion... Just... Many of the chronicles called Margaret the head of that conspiracy. Mm. Well, she was I, the I, link, really, between uh, everybody with Woodfields and Buckingham, really, wasn't she? I mean, if... Yeah, I didn't find anything in the initial conspiracy that says Margaret started it. I didn't see that. And I didn't find anything that said at that time she had the intent of putting her son on the throne. She brought the Duke of Buckingham into the conspiracy by offering them crown. That's what the chroniclers say. Historians Michael Jones and Malcolm Underwood, they suggested that in the first usurpation attempt that Margaret manipulated the Duke of Buckingham to believe that he would be claiming the throne just to get him to pledge Mm. money and men to the usurpation. They even called her a consummate and unprincipled plotter. But I don't know if I agree with that. If she she is, that's that's exactly what we want in this round. Very uh... true. But Margaret had already been negotiating with Elizabeth Woodville through their shared physician Mm -hmm. for Henry to marry the eldest ex-king's daughter, Elizabeth of York. But I don't think we can assume at that time that Margaret would have done it with the intention of putting her son on the throne. And the reason for that is the indoctrination of progeniture in England. The eldest son of the eldest son inherited and was the head of the entire extended family. And at that time, it was the nephew of Henry Stafford, Margaret's nephew, and a descendant of Joan Beaufort, the Duke of Buckingham. He was the head of the Mm. Beaufort family. So in my thoughts, with her already having that rank and the way things were drilled into her, she might have decided to give him the throne. It might have been, let's give him the throne and my son will be safe. But the Duke of Buckingham was also implicated in the disappearance of the princes wasn't he so yes that was it they cloud the issue yeah but if she had i don't think buckingham went into it at all with the idea of oh well i'm the second most powerful man at the moment i know what i'll put henry the seventh on the throne and still be the second most powerful man it just yeah. doesn't sound plausible at all he was going for his own he was going for end. the throne yeah yeah it just backfired <laughs> spectacularly yeah. and Partly because of his own personality. He was, yes. just an, he was just a thoroughly awful person and nobody wanted to follow him. Yeah. But I also can't see her, with all this attempts to keep Henry safe, that she would have put him on the throne and put him in the warpath of Buckingham. Mm. I personally think that at that time, she was just trying to get rid of Richard and bring her son home. It wasn't until after he died and Henry became the head of the Beaufort family that she then decided, mm. you know what, let's give him the crown. Yes, it's like Kind Hearts and Coronets. Have you seen that film where they? No. He's about twelfth in line to this title, and takes um, them all out and takes it one, one by one. He takes oh, them all, and it's a comedy. It's a it's, 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 like, it's like a one. nice film. <laughs> it's a, it, it's a very nice film. <laughs> I I don't watch horror films. What's so it's it called? Nothing nasty. 
Kind Hearts and Coronets. I'm going to have to look that up. Yeah, it's a, it's quite an old film. I think it's black and white, but um, it's all it's all done very very nicely and jokily. <laughs> but um, yes, she must have suddenly thought, oh, hang on, yeah. Apart because there was the Duke or Earl Earl of Exeter, I think he was, wasn't mm-hmm. he? Holland. Is he still around? I think he might have gone by I'm now. I'm not sure at this point. But nobody wanted him because he was just a nutter. Yeah. <laughs> he was a thug. And nobody, I think they just dismissed him. Yeah. We can't have him. Yeah. <laughs> I agree with Polydor Virgil. He was a historian at that time and a familiar face at Henry VII's court. He wrote that after the death of the princess had became known, Margaret began to think of the crown for Henry. I think prior to this, it was nothing but his safety, his land, his safety, his land. And then now, you know what? The only way he's going to be safe is if he's in charge. And he now has a way to get there. (laughs) We also have to keep in mind that Mm. even though a papal bull had been issued for the legitimization of the family in John of Gaunt's lifetime, it had spiritual force, no legal influence. Gaunt also had their legitimacy confirmed by Act of Parliament, and that act legitimized the legal state and nobility, but conferred no royal interest or right to the throne. Henry IV mm-hmm. added in a letter patent after the enablement of those honors and the legitimacy, the Latin accepted dignitate regali, which means beside regal or the exception of regal claim. It specifically banned the Beauforts from the throne. Mm. The only thing that Margaret could hold on to for Henry's claim to the throne is that a letter of patent doesn't carry binding power on the king's successors and can be overturned by an act of parliament. I think this would also have been in everyone's mind at that time and been difficult to overcome. I did read on one website, and I'm afraid I lost the website. I wrote it down and then my computer (laughs) crashed. They claimed that Henry VI, when he met with Henry as a child rescinded that letter patent but i found that nowhere else it seems an odd thing to do on a single meeting henry didn't have children at that time and the only brothers he had were the tutors it's possible but since i didn't true yeah actually that seems more likely now yeah but since i didn't find it anywhere else i'd like to see Mm. where they got that because nowhere else i mean Nicola Tallis doesn't mention it. Uh, Jones and Underwood don't mention it. I didn't find it even on Wikipedia. They didn't mention it. You know, the last source you ever want to look at. (laughs) In the first conspiracy to overthrow Richard that was ultimately unsuccessful, Thomas Stanley, Margaret's husband, wasn't involved, and he claimed not to know anything about it. I have no idea, in a time that women were were not allowed to act autonomously, how Margaret managed to conspire without her husband's knowledge. Were they still, were they living apart at this time? No, not yet. They were still very much cohabitating. I think he knew a lot more than he let on. Yeah, I think he did, and he acted just in such a way as plausible deniability. They'd been through so many things going back and forth. Yes, do you think they might have planned this between them, that it was best for both of them, for him to stay on as far on that side as he possibly could, so that she had somewhere to run to if it all went wrong? I am 100% behind that. I totally <laughs> think that is because I don't see how he she could have done it without his knowledge. He was already sending money to Henry was, during yeah. a time that he was conspiring. But the act of being uninvolved did save Margaret when it went mm. belly up or however it's, you want to call it. It's like in during the Civil War, you'd have brothers of a family that would deliberately take a side each so that whichever side won, they wouldn't lose everything. Would yeah. protect the family. Um, mm-hmm. 
that's very much, mm. I think, what happened here because Margaret was only, only spared a death sentence because of her husband's innocent station and mm -hmm. status. That's it. Even with this close brush death, Margaret didn't stop from conspiring either. With the Duke of Buckingham now dead and Henry being the last surviving male Beaufort, Margaret initiated a second conspiracy with the new aim of making Henry king. She sent money to her son again and continued to gather support through Elizabeth Woodville's contacts, now on the promise that Henry would marry Elizabeth of York and join the throne under the confined house of Lancaster and York. We were first seeing the houses being brought together. This last intrigue that she was involved in, which was ultimately the successful one, her son was now king. But this, again, didn't mean he was out of danger. Margaret continued through his reign to use informers and spies herself. She had her own court and her own informers, her own spy network to ferret out any danger to her son and report them to him. All of the sources I investigated show that Henry and Margaret were partners in their information gathering for the rest of his life. He passed on information to her and she passed on information to him. So even though he's now king, she was still conspiring. <laughs> it's insane. I think right now I want to leave amphibly there because for the rest of her life her actions don't feel like intriguing she spends the time increasing her wealth and that of the king through support we don't have any evidence of her actively attempting well, she's got nothing to contribute she's got no reason to do it anymore no. she? i mean she he's there yeah she's won. and we don't have any evidence of her actively attempting to take anyone down through her own actions the only possible intrigue that could be mentioned is the removal of Elizabeth Woodville from court. Fairly early on in the reign, she is removed to a convent. So this is Elizabeth of York's mother. And yeah. uh, some people... Was she removed or did she want to go? Don't know. <laughs> no, it's okay. So she goes to Bermondsey. A number of the historians claim... Oh, that's where... Um... Jasper and Edmund were brought up in Bermondsey oh, Abbey. Yeah, so it probably it might have might have been a nice idea, I suppose. Possibly, I don't know, but yeah. I don't see anything saying that she was willing to go. I don't see anything saying that she wasn't happy to go. But Henry asks her to leave to Bermondsey, and many of the historians believe that the reason he did it was because his mother didn't want to share the queen mother role, which could be her intriguing. Yes. Yes, it might be an awkward one because who takes, well, I suppose Margaret takes precedence, doesn't she? Does she? She was never dowager mm. queen. No. She's only queen mother. Yeah. So, so like, well, maybe that's it. Who does take precedence? So instead, she just possibly had her removed from the court so she didn't have to compete at all. Mm. Elizabeth Woodville gave up all of her possessions and moved into the abbey. She gave up all of her dower lands. Everything. She might have just thought, oh, to hell with that. I just don't, I can't be bothered anymore. Yeah, I've had enough. Yeah. I don't know, but I still like to think that Margaret might have just you know, pushed <laughs> Give her. Give a little shove. Yeah. So, rating her, what do you think? Oh, well, I mean, if, if you've got your own spy network, I think, yeah. <laughs> do you have your own spy network? Because I don't. No. No. Um, I mean, it's so difficult because we're right at the beginning. Mm hmm And I, I, mean, I personally think she rates very high. Yes, I'm sure. She, yes, she does. She starts all of her actions at 13. Mm. Oh, dear. This is difficult, isn't it? I'm sure once we've done a few, 
we'll have something to gauge it against. Mm -hmm. But I mean, she's got her own spy network. I mean, she's. Got... I'm thinking nine. I was thinking a ten. Well, I'm trying to work out why why it's not a ten. Um, because she wasn't maybe always because successful? we don't know enough. We don't know. Actually, we don't know the nitty gritty of it. In right, later, we're not a hundred percent sure. Well, in later in later episodes and later years <laughs> there'll be a lot more information and we'll know exactly who said what to whom and what happened and then they say such and such and it's we'll know more that's the only reason i'm not thinking a 10 okay and also at this very early stage <laughs> on our first go i feel like there ought to be a bit of leeway but i don't know why i'm not saying a 10 really but i'm going to stick with nine, nine. <laughs> okay okay so that's a 19 for amphiboly yeah. Mm. Next up, antiperistasis. The rise and fall. I think this is where Margaret will also score very highly. Margaret's life was nothing if not tumultuous in status and safety. Margaret began life as a wealthy heiress related to the king as his niece, then marrying into it as his sister-in-law. During the Wars of the Roses that developed, she was either family to the ruling monarch or the enemy, yet she managed to balance her marriages to ensure her own safety and, in a good part, her son's. First, she was married to Edmund at 12, mother at 13. Through traumatic birth that may have done so much damage, she never had another child. Then she took her own initiative and arranged her next marriage herself. She chose someone close to the Yorkists as a survival strategy. Her machinations during the re-adoption of Henry VI led to more suspicion from Edward IV and a possible refusal of honours. Even so, she and Stafford slowly re regained his trust, which couldn't have been easy. When Stafford dies, she scandalously marries within the year of mourning to a man that ensured her safety yet again by being close to the king. There's some evidence that Edward approved of the marriage, perhaps if only just to keep Margaret under a faithful retainer's eye. Then Richard comes to the throne, possibly through the horrific means of killing his nephews, and Margaret conspires to overthrow him. When the first conspiracy against Richard failed, Margaret was stripped of all her titles, all her land, everything, even the right to inherit the lands from her mother. She lost everything. Her husband had use of her lands until his death, but then they would revert to the crown. Margaret would be destitute and cast out. Margaret was to be kept prisoner by her husband, and she was even supposed to be separated from her servants. It isn't clear how much her husband actually kept her confined, because there's still evidence that Margaret was able to continue to send money to her son and letters. I don't think he fully did it, but legally, she was a pauper, had nothing. Yeah, I don't think he... <laughs> the only reason she wasn't killed was because of her marriage to her husband. That's the only reason. Once her son was on the throne, Margaret's star did nothing but rise. She was given precedence almost equal to that of the queen, walking beside her train rather than behind her. She even wore the same clothing as the queen and a coronet at functions, at ceremonies. She was given the wardship of several children, including the 10-year-old Edward Plantagenet. Mm. That's the Earl of Warwick, George's son. Wardship was almost never given to women at this time. She was given several mm -hmm. wardships. One of the most astounding indi indications of her power when her son came to the throne is the fact that she acted as a jailer for her son during the first years of his reign. They put a woman in charge of a jail. Jailer. Yeah. His political enemies were given to his mother to keep in a dungeon. She had a dungeon. 
She had a jail. I think that's weird. That is weird. Yeah. During Parliament, she sat at Elizabeth's right when she wasn't even supposed to be there. (laughs) (laughs) She joined the Order of the Garter with Elizabeth of York. The first child of the monarchs was named after her. Hang on, she she was a member of the Order of the Garter. She was a member of the Order of the Garter. Was she the first... Uh, first women were they no she wasn't the first i did find uh evidence of a few other only a few other Mm. usually queens uh but she was Mm. the last until i think like the 16 or 1700s oh really so for centuries she was last woman admitted to the order she was allowed to use a cloth of a state it was embroidered with her portcullis and her son's red rose the tudor rose The people of court would go through Margaret to petition influence to the king. Her authority and influence being seen as paramount. They believed that when the king decided against something, they could use the avenue of Margaret to have him change his mind. The extent of her influence is contested, but the fact that she was able to, on several occasions, intercede and protect her extended family members from Henry's displeasure has to indicate a great influence. Henry used Margaret as an additional line of protection and information. He basically used her estates as sources to gather information through her servants. So he would own land in certain areas and her lands would be in various other areas, basically creating a wider web to keep an eye on the country. And so she had her own spy network. Margaret retained her own council. And I mean that by having council members Mm -hmm. matters were often shared or passed back and forth between her council and the king's council for decisions she was the only woman to be allowed to retain men with oaths of loyalty at that time henry refused any other noble to have that anymore and they weren't allowed to use livery margaret was able to continue to use hers and she was able to practice judicial powers in line with the powers of the prince of wales up until there was a prince of wales and afterwards she continued Mm. to have judicial powers They would send matters for arbitration to her or court matters to her for her judgment. And I think most of all, to show how much she rose, in the end, in her will and in much of her dispatches, she referred to herself as princess. (laughs) And nobody contested it. Mm. In a way, I think she's, for this round, she was too successful because she never was plunged into penury was she no i mean she the money might have gone to her husband but she was still married to him so i mean she she wasn't destitute he he didn't stop her from having no so (laughs) it seems like all he did was put her out of sight of the king yes yes he probably said just stay here dear because we're in big Mm -hmm. trouble now but I'm not going to stop you from doing any of the things you weren't no, supposed to I be think, doing. No, I think... Because she was still able to conspire and get him off I think the as far as this rounds goes, she's blown it by being too good. <laughs> <laughs> because... I still think she scores highly, but maybe not a 10 because she didn't come from nothing. Well, she didn't come from she nothing. She never went wealth. down to nothing. Because there were plenty of people who were tainted during the War of the Roses that really yes, did... Yes, including her son. Yeah, that really did end up with nothing. She never... Yes, or dead. Indeed, Yes. Um, <laughs> she never did that because she was too canny. She, yeah, I think she's ruined it for herself on this round. <laughs> I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna rate her as highly as if she had hadn't been so good, unfortunately, because she, okay, because she didn't plunge the debts. She could have done, but she, but she was too clever. What are you thinking? I'm gonna. 
Oh. <laughs> oh, this is really difficult, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> we listen to them and they're like, oh, that seems like yes. a reasonable number. But then you have to do it yourself. I, but given the massive change that we are going to see in this era, I'm going to go for a six. Actually, I think that's a yeah. good score. I'll go with a six as well. <laughs> So that's a combined score of 12. Mm. This one is fairly simple. Margaret was more than willing to die to protect her son's interests. She put her safety in jeopardy constantly. She negotiated with each monarch as the throne changed hands, putting herself in peril every single time, Mm. not knowing if the next one was coming back. Richard could have easily put Margaret to death by attainder when she conspired the first time against her. The only reason he didn't was because her husband's status saved her life. He had already done so much to erode his own support for the throne that he couldn't afford to alienate Margaret's husband. She was lucky, really, with him, wasn't she? I mean, she could have... She was very lucky. I mean, somebody who's willing to kill off children and kill people by telling them that they are conspiring by witchcraft and just having them executed without trial would have had no compunction. I think the only reason she survived is timing. Mm. If he hadn't already eroded so much support, I don't think Margaret would have lived. Mm. So what do you think? I think she deserves high with this one because she wasn't doing it all for, for herself, but I mean, she might have thought she'd do quite well out of her son being king, but she was doing quite well anyway, really, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to... Well, I think um, for full points for martyrdom... It, you have to uh, die? Maybe you do, do have, you have to, to die. Be a martyr? Maybe you do have to die. Uh, I think so too. Yeah. Oh dear, this is horrible. What a horrible round. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know why we chose this one now. Now that you've said how horrible the round is. Yeah. Yep. Uh, <laughs> You cannot be successful if you want to score highly in martyrdom. Yes, you've got to you've got to fail at the round to win at the round. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's the same as others. <laughs> Everybody has that kind of. I'm going to plump. I'm, pl- I'm plumping for an eight, and I'm. I don't know why. Um, why is she not getting more? Is it because it's you think of martyrdom as being religious, and this is her son. God. But martyrdom works but, for anything. It, it was does. just whether or not you were willing to die for your. Yeah, and if you are, if you die for your religious if you're a religious martyr, you're expecting greater a things later on. As well, we're expecting yeah. greater. You're know, expecting to be welcomed. And there into are heaven. political martyrs. Oh, um. I'm going. I, I think I'm eight or nine. I'm going for a nine. I think yeah. the only reason she's not getting a ten is for luck. Honestly, that was lucky. I'll go for an eight because then I think it balances it out. I'm not sure why I'm going for an eight rather than a nine. I think once we've done it a few times, we'll get we'll get better. We'll get more of a feel <laughs> for it, and we know what we're pitting it against. So that's a seventeen. Eighteen. Okay, I I can't not say this. She was the progenitor of the Tudor line. Yes. Through her granddaughter, Margaret, she's also the progenitor of the Scottish royal family as well. Her descendants are on the British throne today. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's still there. Yeah. If you need more than that, Margaret's activity in the realm of learning and politics, while it wasn't unique, it is much more extensive and involved than any other lady of her own generation or the next several generations. It's not certain, but there is evidence that Margaret set out the rules of grieving for a royal family with exacting detail, including the length and form of the hoods and trains that you could wear, <laughs> as well as the rules for a queen's confinement for birth, which also was followed by everybody. Both rules would be followed for the entire Tudor era, not just by the monarchs, but most noble women would follow it. Margaret was a lover of books. She encouraged book purchases and was a patron of book production. It doesn't sound like a big deal, but books were worth entire estates at that time. Richard Pinson was paid by Margaret for the printing of over a hundred books, many that she herself translated from French to English. Mm -hmm. There was no English translation prior to her doing that. Goodness. Margaret had her own chapel and a choir of boys to sing during services. And while this sounds funny, is that your cat? <laughs> no, that's yours, I think. I haven't, I haven't got one here. Yeah, you know, she's <laughs> back up there. Yeah, no, I was, I'm locked in. <laughs> Willow. Hi. You need to shush. We're busy. I think we're just going to have to tolerate the fact that you can hear my cat. Yeah, not tomorrow. Yeah. That's nice. Is it? Yes. <laughs> To the listeners, this is my cat, Willow. <laughs> she is blind and mostly deaf and very loud, so I apologize. <laughs> Margaret had her own chapel and choir of boys to sing during services. While that sounds like it's selfish, she also paid for their education and upkeep, sending numbers of them to college. Um, that would have presumably have had a domino effect for their lives. It would have increased their income and status of their family, including future generations. She also negotiated marriages for them to get them ahead. <laughs> Margaret had power delegated to her throughout Henry's reign. In some cases, this caused a lot of resentment. <laughs> She'd settled disputes through arbitration that customarily would have gone through court. And by court, I mean le legal court. Mm. Well, that sounds a bit bit random doesn't it it does it's, but when you think of the whole i would say it was extrajudicial if i could pronounce extrajudicial extrajudicial <laughs> that is a tongue twister yes <laughs> it was a little hmm. some of the arbitration was passed from henry's court to her court so it normally would have gone for arbitration through the crown and he delegated that power to margaret in some cases why would she have a court it seems yeah. I don't know, because yeah. she really wanted to be queen, I think. Yes. In one case... That's the her... thing, actually, oh. with this martyrdom thing. Yeah. Going back, going back a step. How much was her wanting Henry to be on the throne? It's a bit, she sounds a bit like these pu sort of pushy entertainment mothers. mothers. <laughs> yes, who push their, push their children onto the stage because that's where they want to be. I'm, I'm beginning to re rethink this martyrdom now. I'm thinking perhaps she pushed him to do it because that's where she wanted to be. It's possible. So that's... I mean, he only has the crown through her claim. Well, mm. he then claims it. it's because right of conquest, but the initial was because of her. Yeah, well, right of conquest gives you um, God's... God says yes at that point, doesn't he? The thing with posterity, I mm -hmm. found this with trying to work it out with J Jasper, Tudor. They do a lot for posterity, but does posterity remember them for it? 
In this case, they do. In 1503, she was asked to arbitrate between the town and the University of Cambridge. And this focused her attentions to be, become a patron for Cambridge, including founding two colleges, St. John's College and the second was Christ College, Cambridge. Is she not Lady Margaret Hall or is that, I can't remember, is that, is that Cambridge or Oxford? Perhaps that's a different, different Margaret. I'm not sure. These are the oh. only two that I found out about. Oh, right. but... It's probably a different Margaret. There were so many of them, wasn't it? Yeah. She ensured her patronage for them for generations, and she's still remembered today. It is also interesting that we're going back to that claim of being a bad mother-in-law. After Elizabeth's death, she finally felt able to involve herself in the benefaction of Queen's College. Prior to that, it was the purview of Elizabeth, and even though Elizabeth wasn't highly active in it, Margaret waited until after Elizabeth's death to start becoming a patron of Queen's mm. College. She had chambers at Christ's and St. John's and used those chambers, even chiding a professor for being too harsh in his correction of a student while she was there. She popped open the window and shouted at him to go gently. <laughs> she actively involved herself. Her badges and coats of arms can be seen on the building she founded. Margaret ensured that after her death, the college would continue, and the building finished. Um, she willed a council be formed to continue the work to ensure it was completed after her death, and it still took mm. almost a decade, but she ensured it happened. Well, I think with the fact that... Sorry, I'll stop hitting the table. Um, I mean, it's the big one is the fact that they're still here. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think that is one of the biggest yeah. ones. I think she's got to score highly for that, really. Yeah. Her line has continued. Yeah. Um, I mean, I wonder how many people are actually related to her now. <laughs> Quite a number, I should have thought. Yeah, we'd think it would be hundreds of people. I mean, I, with the posterity, because we're just starting out with this, it's, we're sort of finding our way with these these different rounds. Um how many people have heard of Margaret Beaufort? Not many, yes. I would think. I mean, that's the problem I've mentioned in the Jasper Tudor thing. That right. Yes, he's done a lot for posterity, but nobody's heard of him. <laughs> but uh, I take that back, actually. Anybody who goes to Cambridge would know her. Yeah. Absolutely anybody who would attend Cambridge. She has two very large portraits hanging in Cambridge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think she's got to score highly because her ancestors are still knocking around. Mm -hmm. I shall I agree. plump for... Uh, I'm going to go for an eight. You're going for an eight? I am actually going to give her a ten. I know for it seems ridiculous, but her ancestors are still on the throne. Yeah. <laughs> anything like yeah no, I'll, go, I'll go for a nine actually i'm not i'm not gonna go okay. for a ten because yeah it's a pity for her that she's first because i just i, I don't feel i can pour all the all the points in at this time and then think later well actually that was better than margaret <laughs> margaret Beaufort. so yeah She's a great one to start with, and at the same time, she might be the worst one to start <laughs> with. Maybe later on, we'll go, holy cow, yes. she should have just gotten tens across the board. I don't know, except for yeah. antiprestasis. Flaunt of bleeding flaunt. Mm-hmm. 
It's a shame we only have two portraits of Margaret to look at, and they look so similar that they could have just been one. There are several portraits that at one time were thought to be only all of Margaret, but only two portraits are the ones that hang in St. John's College, Cambridge. The rest are thought to be copies of these, where somebody just directly redid them. The first portrait is by Dutch artist Maynard Waywick. That's an artist at Henry VII's court, and I am going to share my screen here so you can see it. Do you yeah, see it? No, I've, yes, I've seen this one, yes. Well, you want to, to describe, describe it, it to yes, listeners? I was just thinking, I mean, it's just very, she looks very much like a nun, doesn't she? She's got what yes. you would describe as a habit on. Yeah, that's the Vowess's garb. Yes. Um, she's on her knees, she's got her hands in prayer she's reading what's presumably a religious tome she looks as if she's in a religious i mean the, the windows look like a religious establishment i mean i don't know it could be anywhere she's want me to she's got on. her um portcullis behind her she's got her badge and everything yep there's dinky little smiles we keep coming across these dinky little smiles at this time when I, saw... I think it's hard to hold your face yes. in a smile for that well, long that's for what them I to wonder, because, because later ones, people didn't smile, did they? And these, yes, they always look as if they've got the vestige of a smile that they've been keeping up for quite a long time. Because I saw that you get mm -hmm. the picture of Henry VI and he's got this little hesitancy look and you think, oh, that's, that's, that's him, really. That's just right. Mm -hmm. But then you see Jasper Tudor's got the same look. Henry VII's got the same look sometimes. And it, yeah, yeah, I think it is just they've been told to smile, and that's by the time they've got to the mouth, that's that's the smile that's left, that sort of rictus. Oh, I can't do this anymore. No. Mm -hmm. Um. So for this, the Simpliner portrait isn't as prominent or abundant as later Tudor portraits. I wonder if I can do both. Of I mean, them I'm at not the looking at the, her face and thinking, oh yes, I I know her. It's it's Hold a it's a general slightly generalized face, isn't it? Yes. Here's the two portraits side by side, and you'll see they look almost identical. Oh, this yeah. is the Roland portrait. <laughs> it looks like they were done at the exact same time. Mm. The Roland portrait, which is the new portrait, you'll see that beside the coat of arms for the king and the portcullis below her is a dove. You can barely oh, see yes. that on the <laughs> right hand one. But if I zoom in to the background, so you can see it, there are portcullises in the wallpaper. Oh, yeah. All the way through. And look at the rings on her hand. Are they some sign of religion? It's just she's got a lot of them. Yeah. Well, she's... So she was still wearing jewellery, mm -hmm. even though she was in the Vowess's garb. <laughs> Uh, her portcullis is absolutely everywhere. It's in the window beside Henry's coat of arms with the crown. And the Bible, it is a Bible. And she's kneeling in front of it. It's difficult to... to oh, I think this flaunt flaunt ones are going to be one of the hardest, mm -hmm. really, aren't they? Um, because the other what thing to we... note is that she's under a cloth yes. of estate. She's under the king or queen's cloth of estate in her portrait. Even though, she's, Henry... even though she's neither. <laughs> yes. Henry Tudor's rose is right above her. Mm. And yet in this one, 
Waywick did more on her face than he did on the background, so you can't really see it on mm. Waywick's one. But on Roland's, you can definitely see that it was the Judah Rose. Mm. I, I, I mean, as far as symbolism is concerned, I mean, we've got to, got to rate it highly, haven't we? Mm-hmm. As far as feeling you know the person... I'm not it getting that at all. It doesn't tell us anything at all. Yeah. <laughs> no. So I might... I think I'm going to go straight down the middle with this one because it's an interesting picture. <laughs> but I also want to know her. And I'm not I'm not knowing her, unless that's precisely what she looked like, in which case I apologise to the artist. But I, I'm not... I'm, not, I'm going to go with the five. Because, yes, interesting symbolism. I don't know her. I was thinking the same. Mm. Portraiture, that's a five. We wanted to have it have a little less of an effect on their score yeah. since it's just a painting. And honestly, I'm not sure how much say they had in their painting. Okay. Okay, so that's a 72, 72. score out of 90. That's really yes. high. That is well, pretty... I'm assuming that's high. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't gone that far yet. What? But we still have the most important question. Yep. Are they too delicious or what? Reasons I think that she should get it. When her son passed away, it's astounding to think that Margaret was given the regency at the head of the council. She was actually the head regent or in charge of the regency for Henry VIII because he wasn't of age yet. Mm. While some queens in the past have managed to be regent for their sons and its sons. Yeah, I was going to say, this is, this is granny. Yeah, and the two most recent examples were Elizabeth Woodville, who lost the throne and both of her sons were killed, and Margaret of Anjou, whose son was killed. Mm. You wouldn't think that he would have left it in the hands of yet another woman, but he did. And at that time, public would still have those memories fresh. I think the fact that Margaret, who wasn't a queen, wasn't the mother, was given the position of guiding the country just flabbergasts me. Mm. Her patronage set up Cambridge as one of the two preeminent universities. Her badge is stamped all over the building. <laughs> I yeah, I'm yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, she's done all right, really, isn't she? Negatives. She didn't do anything for herself, really. Everything was done for her son rather than herself. It's but ultimately, not really negative, is it? No. Yeah. Yep. I'm a yes, definitely. I am a yes as well. Okay. So, Margaret Beaufort, Countess of Richmond, you are too delicious. Oh, indeed. Thank you for listening to our first biographical episode on Margaret Beaufort, Countess of Richmond. Mm -hmm. Next week, or two weeks from now, Lucy will be covering Jasper Tudor. I will. Yes, fascinating man. We got a bit of him in this one, but I think that's going to be the way it is for every single one of our episodes since yes. we're everybody's intertwined so much. Yeah. One thing we do have to do is you need to pull my next person. Oh, yes, of course. Hang on. The way we're doing this, because we don't have a chronological timeline for everybody, they don't come neatly one after the other, like every other podcast for uh, the Rex Factor family. Lucy has a tub that she's put them in, and I've created a satchel, so I will pull one, her next person that she will be covering. Should we leave mine till next week? Yes, we are going to leave yours <laughs> till after you've done, Jasper. But she's going to pull mine now, so the next person I'll be doing in a month's time is... Is... Right, you will be doing... Oh, 
quite excited and anxious at the same Ooh. time. Ah, an interesting one. John de la Pole, second Duke of Suffolk. Oh, <laughs> gosh her first husband yes that's really weird oh that should be interesting i don't know anything about him whatsoever i know his family is quite involved very very mm. involved going against henry the seventh but i honestly don't know much about him so this will be interesting and it's mm. funny that we pull him and we he's the husband she refused to acknowledge <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of an ouch <laughs> awesome well, thank you for listening, and hopefully you enjoyed our first foray into this new podcast. Yes. After a lot of preparation, we're finally here. Oh. <laughs> so I hope we like it after all this. I enjoyed it. It was a little yeah. nerve-wracking presenting it, and hopefully it didn't. I'm hoping it was interesting. I was interested. Perfect. So you got one. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> You can find details of the podcast or contact us on finish off our episode with a little Shakespeare quote. So now, alas, this parting strikes poor lovers dumb. Take pains, be perfect, adieu. Goodbye. Goodbye. Face and narrowed eyes, an ace tucked in a wimbo, in smoke filled rooms of a single bow. A diamond smiled as twinkle, she rolls out the sleeve of a scarlet rose, cheroot clamped in her teeth, oh, with one eye on her royal flush, the other eye for the police, oh. And poke a lil and old hollow hands Orlando. But nobody plays like Margaret B. She is always winning. At the end of the night, she pockets her chips and she has made a killing. And is this how she backed her boy and funded his invasion with the backing of some brawny lads? It's a friendly persuasion She knows she walks a dangerous path And says, well, whatever That's the way I like it, baby I don't want to live forever